So I am here with Alan Chipman. He is a former candidate for city council for 6th District here in Richmond. He and I know each other over the Bird app. The Bird. Um, the Bird, man. <laughs> the Bird. He is a pillar of the Richmond community. He has, even before he and I started following one another, I have been a fan of his work. And I knew your work from a few years ago because of the sort of comments that you would that you would make on LeVar Stoney. <laughs> Everybody would dunk on Stoney last year, man. Everybody would dunk on Stoney. And I, and I never forgot that. I never forget a name, especially on the Bird app. You can't, you can't, especially, you know, it's amazing is that last year they were, they were organizing, you know, Alexis Rogers was running for the mayorship. She announced her candidacy at the last minute and basically almost took Stoney's, almost took Stoney's seat. What's hilarious is is that somebody on Twitter said that they had a call from LeVar Stoney's campaign and they were like trying to convince people to like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> trying to convince people to actually get on the phone and vote for him. And he's just like, yeah, I, I bet it's been pretty difficult to get volunteers <laughs> since this past summer, huh? He's like, yeah, it has. And he's just like, yeah, it's kind of difficult when you gassed all of downtown Richmond, huh? With tear gas. <laughs> hey, and- man, don't gas your constituency. I mean, I, I think that would be a... Yet here we are, huh? It only takes, what, 34% to win. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's insane to me is that it didn't you didn't just gas you didn't like gas Shaco, right? You didn't gas the East End. You, you didn't gas East Henrico. You gassed Monument Avenue of yeah. all places. Of all places. Yeah, man. Like people's that, kids were out there, clergy was out there. I mean, at some point the police were so wild, they were tear gassing um Stephanie Lynch and Dr. Jones and everybody was it was it was a hot mess. They ran wild all over Richmond last year. Yeah. Tuesday night. It yeah. felt to me a lot like 2016 that night. Mm-hmm. And, this, and the atmosphere in the city on Wednesday felt a lot like 2016. Like it yeah. felt like just... Like the Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle election night uh, SNL skit. Yeah. As the night goes on. What are you talking about? Yeah, they definitely would. And the thing is, 57% of white women voting for the Republican Party is not like anomalous like that's since the civil rights act was passed the majority of white people have like overall have not voted for the democratic party i just i want to put that out to you since the civil rights act was passed not the voting rights the civil rights act was passed a majority of white people have not voted for the democratic party then to be johnson new he said when i sign this i'm signing away my people from the democratic party straight up man's knew that he said out loud, he, as, soon, as he's not, there goes the South. There yeah. it goes. But Dude, brother Lyndon, brother Lyndon, I won't say brother because he said some wild stuff about my people. Lyndon B. Johnson at least understood they not coming back. Yeah. So yeah. let me give these black people Thurgood Marshall. Let's turn them out to vote. Right. Since I'm already passed, since I'm already on their voting blacklist, might as well go all the way with it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're exactly but then, right. but, but then the whole Vietnam war is what effed him up. That's what yeah. effed him up. But he let, since I'm on a blacklist already, I'm all the way on there. Let's get Thurgood up here. Let's get, you know what I mean? But Terry McAuliffe just, oh, I can get him back though. No, you can't Terry. No, it's like not, the person. Not you. Especially not yeah, you. Yeah, not you. <laughs> Especially I guess it's, not it's, you. Your, it's your friend. It's your, 
I say Yo, like this. It's it's your friend. <laughs> Yo, we can cut it out. Whose Yo, girl? It's your it friend whose girl broke up with him, and was very clear about why I'm not coming back to you. He's like, I can get her back, and you're like, ah, maybe five years ago, bro. But I don't know if you got what she's looking for, and so it's just like it's 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 not. He can't compete with the crazy. The crazy stuff he would need to do to actually get those people back, he would lose too much of his core base to do it. It's like, you can't get them. And what it would take to get them, you're going to have to get a whole lot crazier. And so just admit that they're gone and then focus on who you can get and who you can keep and see what the cards may be. But I I, I would love to say that I was, I, I would say I was more surprised about the lieutenant governor race yeah, and the attorney general race. But once I saw my friends and I saw the fervor in which they announced they were never Trumpers with lawn signs saying, oh, yeah, I'm finna go knock on doors with him tomorrow. That's when I and I saw them ads. That's when I knew um, Terry ain't winning his joint. Oh, my God. And the thing is, like, it wouldn't even be so bad. Like, like maybe I could tolerate, right, a Yunkin. And oh, my God. And you saw did you see Sears on Fox News this morning talking about Nixon? Nixon is a homeboy. So oh the first person God. to talk about black oh business my God. was was Nixon. The first person. See, she 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 gonna get messed up like James Brown did, saying, "I right, don't want with no hand me down." Uh, yeah, go ahead and do this. and then he forget Booker Nixon, T. Washington. Forget then, Booker T. Washington. We just gonna go straight right. to Nixon. And then Nixon started acting like who he really was, and then James Brown had to come back with that record talking about funky president and oh, I see it now. The city's burning down. Like, if you listen to that album over the interlude, it's four different parts in the album with somebody saying, oh, I see it now. So it's just like, man, this it's, it's the same Southern strategy. And, and who who was out there uh, getting them votes for Nixon? Wasn't it Lee Atwater who created the Southern strategy, right? Yeah, yeah, and said yeah. it out and so, loud. Right, and, out so, loud. and so now she, and who's the first person she praised? The person Lee Atwater worked for. It all comes full circle, man. You, you know what it is. I said, it's going to be a long four years, bro. It's day yeah. one. She's not even in office. And she already talking about something. That's a homeboy. And the first you, person. Disrespectful. You, the first person. What are you Black people about? ain't know nothing about business. I don't know what Maggie Walker was doing. But the first person to tell us about Black business was Richard. There is literally a monument. To- <laughs> it's literally a monument, fam. In like you. <laughs> oh my god! I felt like man. Soldier Boy on the Breakfast Club. Dre. Oh my god! Nixon. Nixon. <laughs> oh my gosh, man! I got laugh to and keep from thing- crying, as they say. Oh my goodness, yo! I- I've had to yell to keep from crying. <laughs> yeah. I have been, I have been apoplectic at the idea that we lost to these clowns. It was the dream gift she could give. To the insurrectionist yeah you look at her there's a black woman doing it believe black women right i'm not racist i'm not racist i'm a patriot semper fi i'm a patriot i'm not racist see she's doing it so that all my black friends hey i did you black vote for the black woman on the ballot did you like yo they got finessed yeah <laughs> they got finessed man. i'm just i'm gonna say they got finessed they got finessed. We they, can, they, we, they, we they can were, literally they title were, this entire they, we got they finessed. They got finessed. And that's why I'm talking to Delegate uh, Ibrahim Sahim. Because qualified immunity, that was sort of a... 
first off, I just want to preface this by saying Ralph Northam, the reason why I said I want to wrap my legs around, I want to wrap my arms around his legs is he leaves the government mansion. <laughs> I don't want him to leave. I don't want Mark Herring to leave, yo. I mean, Fairfax can go. But I mean, but he can go. But but I got, we, we got to keep the AG and the governors because Northam was able to be pressured. We had this anti-Trump sentiment and we also had a progressive surge inside of Virginia that and, allowed- and, and Northam needed to clean his legacy up. Yup. Needed to clean up the blackface. That photo, he had, he knew he had to make up for that. He knew he was in some trouble after that. And he couldn't make up for it when it came to Black Lives Matter, right? He couldn't make up for it when it came to criticizing police and whatnot. He, I mean, as a, as a Democrat, he's yeah, a white man. Pipelines we, and all that, yeah. But the one thing he could do I mean, even he was talking about he wasn't necessarily in favor of it, but he would take a look at it once qualified immunity came up to his desk. If it did come to his desk, right, he didn't dismiss it out of hand. However, and like Chelsea Higgs, right, right. And as Chelsea Higgs Wise told us, like the legislature wasn't even looking to legalize it. That's not what they were doing. It wasn't until Richmond and organizers put pressure on Richmond and the fact that we had Lee Carter, the fact that we had McClellan that we could pressure, that we could talk to, major representatives that we could get to vote for this kind of stuff and we could get them to come up with a justification for it, right? So Northam's justification for legalizing marijuana was we're going to fund pre-K and we're also going to put money in the education fund, right? That sort of stuff. That, that sort of progress in the South, in the South, in the capital of the Confederacy is unheard of. And it, this, that, that short two-year window between 2019 and now was a really an exceptional time. Re- and the thing is, it's unfortunate that it got so clouded up in COVID, uh, unfortunately that. But the kind of progress that we made, I, I mean, we abolished the death penalty. We got gun safety laws in this state. We never, we almost got recent. I mean, the reason why I say almost, because I do not explain. And when January you- 1st, Jeff Davis Highway has been called to be called Emancipation Highway. Right. And there's symbolic things like that. Right. But in terms right. of policy, we yeah, got I just was saying to your to your things that people thought if someone said, right. guess, the, guess the region, this right. person is changing a name to whatever. They'd be like, oh, they probably doing up north, probably some some weird uh, highway up in Detroit. It's like, no, it's in Richmond. It's in Richmond. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> in terms of like material policy right. concessions right. from the state, from this white man. This Southerner yeah. that had black face, that we, we knew, we know that's him. We know that's you. All right. We know that the only reason why we can't get facial recognition to work is because facial recognition technology is too racist to work on black faces. So we actually can't make sure that it's 100% you. That's literally how me and Professor Sinha met on Twitter, was the fact that she was commenting on that picture came out of Northam uh, late in 2019, early Also, how does facial recognition work on a hood? Man, <laughs> man. But he wasn't the one in the hood, remember? He wasn't in the photo at all, right? <laughs> he wasn't in the photo at all. But he no, wasn't I mean, in the photo at all because there was a hood over his face. We couldn't see it. Man. But anyways, right? yeah, right. but I understand what he's saying. He had a debt to pay. Mans, he, Mans, he, Mans was like, yo, I got to go big because I'm about to go home. Yeah, for and sure. He did. And he did. And we accomplished some incredible things in the South. Some incredible things. And we were moving towards, I mean, Chelsea Higgs Thomas direct cash pay transfer to what resentencing not and the thing is it's not until she brought it to my mind there is not a single state in the union that has legalized marijuana so far not a single state so far that has introduced resentencing laws 
meaning outside of like clemency or like pardons, right. everybody is still locked up for marijuana. Yeah, these white yeah. boys are out here. These white men and women are out here with stock trading on the NYSE, getting mm-hmm. subsidized by the federal government and the Federal Reserve, and people are still rotting in prison over yeah. selling marijuana 20, 30 years ago, 10, yeah. 15 years ago, even five minutes ago is ridiculous. Yeah. And we came this close to real fundamental change. Like, can you imagine Bob McDonald? I man, get out of here. I mean, even Terry McAuliffe decided to take down the statues of Monument Avenue. Like something as small as that, the kind of material policy concessions that we were able to get out of Northam. Yes, came from the fact that he owed a debt because we know we know that was you, but we still voted for you anyway. Okay. We know that was you, but the fact that we were able to accomplish this in such a short amount of time with these very special people is the reason why I want to talk to them. It's the reason why I think this is worth documenting. But the kind of progress that we made in that short amount of time and what we're seeing now is incredibly, and the sort of backlash that we're seeing right now, in a way, is really what is concerning to me. Because mm-hmm. it's not just that, right, Terry McAuliffe, of course, couldn't turn out the base because Terry McAuliffe is who he is and because the Clintons are who they are. They just, th- those people, they just don't get it. They are in their own world of their own egos and they are just in their own world. But Yunkin understood something, which is that it's not even necessarily a dog whistle. It really is just the modern day, we don't want our kids integrated, right? I, I see the same thing back home when it comes to like Hickory Schools in Chesapeake. I don't know if you know anything about Chesapeake, but there are like major boroughs within Chesapeake. Uh, There are major boroughs within the city of schools and the school system is such an integral part of the city. It's such an integral part of the city. And the idea that we would somehow integrate Hickory High School, right? Hickory Elementary School, even though the schools are at 115% capacity, even though kids are outside literally in trailers, they're so packed inside the classroom. It's like 35 of them and they're still outside in trailers. Why? Because quote unquote, we know, we know our teachers. We know our principals. We don't want to move our kids. And what does that really mean? We don't want to send our kids to less white schools. We don't want our resources going to kids who are poorer than us. We don't want them. We don't want poor kids attending our schools. We don't really want black people around in our schools. And that's really where that goes because where they were looking to mess with the lines was two places, Deep Creek, which is very black and Oscar Smith. And they won't have none of that conversation. Uh Uh-uh. They weren't going to have yeah. no Black people in and, there. And, 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 and this is where people missed what the education thing was about. And another reason why Terry was not going to get them white women that, that finessed him. Um, when you understand conservative Christian culture, right? The person who I think phrased it the best is a writer named Sung Chan Ra. He, when he talks about the new evangelicalism, I think is the name of the book. But he pretty much says that white people growing up in the suburbs are trained into thinking that the suburbs and white spaces are the Holy land and the city is Babylon. And that if they go into Babylon, they are like the three Hebrew boys that did not bow down and they must not bow. And they must have a, must have a system where they can send their children. So they're not consumed by Babylon. And so a lot of these conservative Christians, when they go to the cities, right, they will not move to the city unless there's a private school there. Right. Or you have Christian ministries, who say, oh, well, we care about, we care about the inner city. So we're going to, 
we're going to expand a private school into the city. Are you doing that? Or do you, are you getting ahead of the white parents that are going to be coming so that then you can educate their white kids while they live in the city without having to do that type of thing? And so part of that education, because not only does he talk about textbooks, what did he also say on day one? We're going to cut this and we're going to give money to private schools, right? Because if you look at the gentrification and how things are, are coming in, now these white people who want to go live and feel alive and live in what they consider Babylon, but they don't want Babylon teaching their kids. Oh, Youngkin is not only going to ban CRT, which I don't even know is even being taught, but he's also it's going not. to, he's also, he's also <laughs> going to teach, he's also going to drag, he's also going to give me the ability to use state funding for these private schools. And so it's like, and if, and if you're not willing, and what, what is Terry McCullough's counter to that? But and he's Donald Trump though. He's not. That silence, that silence is exactly what Terry McCullough's response was. Is exactly what it, it was dead air, because Terry McAuliffe was instead prancing on stage, acting like somehow that music was going to get him. To, I mean, it was just, it it was it was just such a masterclass of the the total bankruptcy of the Democratic establishment in the state, and it's kind of amazing to me. And you know what? Now that I look back at it, you kind of notice how Northam kind of distanced himself from McCullough. Like he wasn't like around at every rally. He wasn't like he wasn't like hitting the campaign trail for him. Yeah. Like, I mean, like now that I think about it, like Northam was kind of like hanging back, kind of like I'm not <laughs> kind of had a phone back, like, I'm not gonna get caught on this one. <laughs> Y'all not gonna blame look, I'm gonna record it, but you're not gonna blame me for this right. one. Right. Right. And I said it the other day, I was like, you look, and I'm gonna talk about Princess Blending in a second. But had McClellan Blanding or Northam been the Democratic nominee, especially had Northam been the nominee, I think we would have won. I mean, it would have been, I, I mean, I mean, I think even with, I think even with McCullough, all you had to do was put it instead of, instead of the, instead of the Muppets, if you don't vote, you know, you're a dick kind of stuff. If you had just put, you literally had just put like a, a B-roll footage of marijuana falling out of a jar and put up, ta-da, right. we, uh, you, 100,000 votes. I mean, you would right. just, if if we had communicated to people, oh hey, we got the eviction, we got an eviction moratorium for you. Oh hey, we expanded SNAP benefits, we got food money for you. Hey, look, we got money for heating and and for heating and cooling expenses in the state. We got money for your electric bills during this time. We got money for you to go to school if you're poor inside of Virginia. If you qualify for Pell grants, we will pay you to go to school. That was what Northam did. He was doing major stuff. And yo, look, it's small stuff, right? It's not universal college. It's not student debt cancellation. It's not right. justice, but it is major policy concessions from right. a white Democratic governor in Virginia, right? Right. I mean, he could, I mean, like, yo, look, he could have been the person to say, no, we're going to keep up these, we're going to keep up all the monuments and those people, you know, he did send out the police, right, to to brutalize people, right? I mean, he did, yes, he did. that work, yeah, and he, in, in essence, endorsed it, but the kind of policy concessions that we got from him were meaningful, and the fact that we didn't hear about any of them on the campaign trail that's what i'm saying none of that on the that's campaign what trail i'm saying because he Not was too bird. busy trying to dig up more stuff to make yunkin into trump into voters who who or essentially were saying did he cheat on his wife because you know that's you know that's why i left trump for biden right 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 right, <laughs> right. you know that's you know that's why i left right. trump for biden did bro man cheat on his wife oh he's still married right, All right he ain't trump then right 
But they thought right. they thought this was this was a policy discussion. Right. Right. I mean, like, it's just it's, it's like it's, yeah. And the thing is, it it was a policy discussion. The problem is, is that Republican policy is not popular. But the kind of conspiracy theories that they come up with in order to whip up their base is exactly what brings them out. It, critical race theory may not like click for you and I, but to Republicans out in like southwestern Virginia. If you can get them come out in record numbers, you can oh, tip yeah, the scales sure. in the way that you need to. When they hear critical race theory, they hear it through the lens of Mark Levin, of Sean Hannity, of Tucker Carlson, of The Five, of, I mean, you name it. They yeah, hear they, it. they hear, they hear, yeah, 1776, not 1619. Right. I That's mean, what they hear. That's what they hear. And I literally, I did a podcast about this, about the consequences, the material consequences of right-wing narratives, about there is a and I wrote about it in Rise of the Reactionaries back in 2014, 2013. There is a concerted effort among the conservative movement in this country for a very long time to not only restrict democracy in the name of racism, in the name of white supremacy, to overturn democracy in the name of white supremacy, but mainly, but, but also in addition to that, to sort of come up with narratives, to come up with conspiracy theories that don't make a lick of sense. And however, you can sell them to your voters and you can whip them up in a frenzy. And you can sort of count on the Democrats to not have any sort of real material response to it. And that's exactly what happened this time. And right. so, I mean, it's-, it's And like they have Black like, people do the messaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah. like, oh, 70, 76 is Black people. But and, the is, and this the, this rally that was held in Staten Island, New York, basically there was like 150, 200 people outside like shouting with guns and what, I mean, they didn't have guns, but they were like shouting with these flags, you know, fuck Biden and socialism sucks, you know, socialism with the cancel mm-hmm. sign through it, all the rest of that stuff. They, in essence, were like, 1776, we didn't go to court. We picked up guns and started shooting one another. First off, the Revolutionary War started 1775. <laughs> Let's get that straight. Number two, <laughs> we did not start shooting each other. We started shooting the British. And it was because the British government would not listen at least according to the founding fathers, right? According to the narrative, they wouldn't listen to us, right? I mean, but you should, I mean, you'll look, Melissa Harris Perry talks about the Declaration of Independence and about, you know, the pursuit of happiness that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with like the bravery. And that's wonderful, right? That's a nice little quote. But if you actually read the document, the majority of it is whining about taxes and in particular about Native Americans, that they would, that the British government would not allow the, the quote unquote founding fathers, the power establishment within the colonies to essentially massacre Native Americans. Just would not allow them to move past a certain line because the British government had all sorts of other interests. And that's another topic of entirely. But my point is, is that there is just this misinformation campaign about who we are as a nation and the right, it may be nonsense, but they have this sort of concerted, put together narrative about the world that how things work and how things move. And if you're in a situation like most working class people are, where the world doesn't make sense to you, where things are so rough, so tough, you don't have healthcare, raises have, you know, wages haven't gone up in almost 40 years. You're, you're consistent, like you were just laid off by the millions in the case of COVID. There is just this inability to understand what exactly is going on around you. And if someone can come up to you with a narrative like, it's this critical race theory. That's what's going on at your school boards. That's the reason why education is so bad. That's the reason, you know, that's the, and once again, we're talking about black people and sharing resources. We can't have that. We can't have that. But we have to cloak it in this idea that 
we are that the Democrats are essentially their race mixing. <laughs> I mean, like it is it really comes back to their race mixing. They're they're busing. And, and and not only that, but now my children have to hear narratives from the blacks. We have to hear what black people think about our history and da 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 da. da. Yeah, don't don't listen, don't listen to that black person. Listen to these black people over here. Those are our black patriots. And you know, and so it's 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 gonna be a Oh, it's going to be a fascinating. I, it's, it's interesting. Transition. They care about parents' choices in reading, but nobody was saying that when Tom Sawyer was using the N-word all the time. Nobody was listening to black parents about that, but okay. All right. Because it's an American classic. But I just, I, I sort of want to get into Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. Sort of the settling in of what is happening before we get to the casino. The sort of settling yeah. in of what, it, of what was happening. How did you feel and how and how did you see this sort of come together really from the beginning and then sort of the the, the months, weeks, days, hours leading up to the election? Like, 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 what was your experience going through this election? What was your perspective? What are some of the things that you noticed? And on top of that, how did you feel on Tuesday night as we saw that, like, it went from, like, McAuliffe could definitely win to it's going to be close to God. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I would. I, the only only way I'd know how to phrase it is this. I knew that we were at the goal line. I knew Terry was going to throw an interception, but I didn't know it was going to be a pick six. I didn't know they were going to run it back to the end zone. Right. That's the only way I know how to describe it. Right. It was like, oh, dang, man. You know what? This this dude, this dude don't throw an interception. We're not going to win the game. So maybe overtime, you know, Ayala's going to have to be in here and, you know, breaking some votes. You know what I mean? We're going to hold up the house. They might, he might get a little crazy, but Mark Herring might slap down some. You know what I mean? It's going to be overtime. We're going to see what happens. I did not anticipate them running that joint back and having the LG and the AG in that joint too. And then it's just, mm. and then, and then it's just like, and your campaign director, Mr. Stoney, was too busy pitching a casino to kids <laughs> that can't even vote. And uh, y'all out here fumbling the bag. So it's just like, <laughs> it's like, what's the priorities at, dog? Like, it's, I don't, it's, it's just like, I, I, I knew. Like, I, I, I knew. I wasn't going to say it, but I just was like, he don't got it. He's still chasing these white women he can't get. So I already know how the, how that's gonna go, but at least we can we can get a Yala and we can get you know Heron back, I guess. But nah, my man's threw the interception and they ran a pick six back in that joint, and the game is over, ladies and gentlemen. That that analogy is perfect. Is yeah. literally perfect. The the play was completely misread. The interception it was telegraphed in advance. Youngkin right. and his team saw that was like, yup, we know exactly who our base is. We know who their base is. And the kind of gamesmanship that they played with Terry McCullough and how the McCullough campaign in their incompetence, in their solipsism, in their arrogance, in their ignorance, was able to essentially throw that ball directly into Youngkin's hands. And he, quarterback, was like, nope, I don't see nobody else who's going to get it. We're going to... He's got Sears. He's got Sears beside him. He has got the attorney general behind him watching out for people. And he just made a dash for it. 
and he he ran across the finish line. I mean, it won't be 60, 70, 80,000 votes. I mean, we're going to find out the actual totals once, I guess, this weekend is over because the last ballots are going to get there probably Friday or Saturday. Yeah. It is wild to me that, that for one, that they kept, that they swept all three. That That's what's wild to me. That not just McCullough lost, but that they swept all three. As you went down the ballot, the race got tighter. So as you go from the, the margin between McAuliffe and Yunkin is about 67 to 80,000 votes. As I said, we'll find out on, uh, on, this, on Monday. Today, is being, today this is being filled on November 4th. So this is going to be going out next Friday. As you go down to Sears versus the lieutenant governor on the Democratic side, who literally I can't name. Because <laughs> like no one knew who she was. But apparently Republicans knew who Sears was. Because for a mm-hmm. while, her vote total was almost as high, if not higher, than Yunkin's. Mm-hmm. Like, she could have ran for governor. <laughs> like, yeah. like the, and then the attorney general, that was, that was a lot tighter. I think that for many reasons, I think that's because a lot of people like Mark Herring. Mark Herring, is not, he's not a progressive prosecutor like Larry Krasner, right? And even progressive prosecutors overall, we can have a conversation about whether or not that's real, right? But, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you're still locking people up. The point is, is that Mark Herring, and as you read the Virginia Mercury article that I referenced earlier, Mark Herring took the attorney general's office to a place where it defended the state. It advocated for it advocated for the state's interests when it came to like laws and constitutional amendments. And it defended state officials and it advised state departments. That's really all it did. It wasn't like this wasn't like, oh, the attorney general's office is coming out with charges against this. Per-. That is not the kind of attorney. When people hear attorney general in like a federal sense or even maybe in their home state, that is not how attorney general traditionally has even worked in Virginia. Right. And Mark Herring's push within the last eight to 12, I mean, really eight years, he's not going to get 12, was to, I, I want to say, humanize the attorney general's office within Virginia. I mean, this is the guy who was pushing for pushing up the threshold on grand larceny, right? This is the guy who was pushing for legalization of marijuana well before even Ralph Northam said anything about it. This was an attorney general who was making a statement saying, yo, look, I'm looking at the court system within, within Virginia. We are wasting a lot of time and resources on things that do not matter. We are causing harm to communities. Yo, look, a white man says that 40, 50 years after the drug war starts, we're like, no, duh, Sherlock, right? But, right? but it's important because he's saying that as a white man in the Democratic Party, in the Capitol Confederacy, while his governor on the top of the ticket is not saying that he's making these public statements and it's important that they say that because we are getting material policy concessions out of these people. So, yeah. So so I thought I might just put that out there, but in terms of my reaction to it, I was so flabbergasted that we really were going to repeat 2016 and that $50 million was essentially set on fire that that $50 million could have easily, I mean, I, my, my sister goes to VCU. The idea that there were not major voter drives on VCU campus is like probably one of the most wild things I've ever heard in my entire life. That's crazy. Like, Obama's got it, right? I mean, saying that, I mean, was, sar- saying that no, was sarcasm. No, yeah. I know. I know. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, dude, like. But it's it, reflective of the Democratic Party's problem. They want Black surrogates. They don't want Black leaders. They don't want to pay Black people who know how to do it on the ground. They don't want Black messaging. They don't want they don't want black campaign leaders, right? They 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 want they want well, um, I guess Lavar, but anyways, but like they don't they don't want grassroots people oh, really? who are doing this. 
Oh, really? They don't want a grassroots uh, people doing this, but they want surrogates. Oh, just come out to the event and do that. You go get your friends. You go whatever. It's like, you going to give me some money to go talk to my friends? You going to give me some radio ads? You going to give me some YouTube buy-ins? You going to give me some... Are you going to invest in the community is really is really the question. Because my thing is, is that with these constituencies is really, and when I'm going to bring back Princess Blanding into this conversation, Princess Blanding, I, I was aware of her before she interrupted uh, Glenn Youngkin and Terry McAuliffe's debate. Yeah. I know a lot of people were, a lot of people were. She's very popular within the activist scene of Richmond. She's very well known. Yeah, I know. Um, she's a good friend of mine. But her candidacy, I didn't say anything about because it's not, I, I don't have anything against her candidacy. As far as we can see, it didn't make any material impact on the race at all anyway, in mm-hmm. terms of like t- between Terry McAuliffe and, and Glenn Youngkin. Because mm-hmm. her candidacy- They would have loved to be able to use her as a scapegoat though. Exactly. Except they can't, except they can't, right? I mean, it's right. like 2016 with, with Bernie Sanders, right? Hillary Clinton talking about, you didn't go out there enough, even though Bernie Sanders literally did more campaign stops during the summer of leading up to that than she did. Princess Blanding, she represents to me a major part of the activist base within Virginia that is in particular out of Richmond. Out of Richmond is where she got most of her votes. She represents a core part of the Black community, the Black activists, Black organizers, the people who actually get Democrats votes, the people who turn 60,000 into 110, 120,000, who get you Mm. your vote margins. The people that Joe Biden was investing in in Georgia in 2021 and in 2020, you feel me? For good Mm. or for bad reasons, right? Mm. The people that Bernie Sanders was investing in when it came to Latino communities in in the South and the Southwestern parts of the United States during the 2020 campaign. You make an important point because a lot of times people talk about voter turnout, but they don't talk about voter multiplication. So it was like, yeah, I turned out. Then I took my behind back to the couch. I ain't knocking no doors. I ain't no campaign events. I wasn't robocalling. So it'd be interesting to see the difference between that. But apparently since they weren't paying nobody with the money they had. And we're blacklisting people. They didn't pay for multiplication and they blacklisted people. That's a lot. And think about, think about, think about the organizers who were behind McClellan. Those very heavy movie movers and shakers. Who were who are back in McClellan? And are you telling me you benched those strategists for the main one? It just right. it just solidifies what I what I said and I believe the Republican Party organized to win an election. The Democrats organized to win a primary. You're exactly right. I mean, Terry McAuliffe could win a primary in this state easily, obviously, right? He has the money and he thinks that the Democratic base is essentially a a small selection of suburban white people and black people. He didn't even pay attention, as far as I understand, to the Latino population in the state, which is just. He didn't. Youngkin did. Youngkin did. Youngkin did. And so it's it's really it it really was something to see. Yeah, it was something to see is what it was. It's what 2021 is something to see. And then, uh, I, this is a whole nother conversation, but we're going to have to have the conversation of people assuming that uh, the Latinx vote is Democratic. No, no. And the thing is, I know, like, my dad is, is, from, is from New York City, grew up poor, and voted Republican until it literally voted for John McCain instead of Barack Obama. Okay? All right? And my mother is Black. <laughs> and her family, but, I mean, just dark. Dark Black. 
still vote. I mean, Latino population, they are, they are not black people. They do not see the Republicans and the right in the same way that we do. Even when it comes to immigration, even when it comes to immigration, oftentimes in Texas, especially in state races, Latinos vote for Republicans, a majority of them still. And so Bernie Sanders, like whole pitch was like, yo, look guys, these could be the, our next, this could be our next dependent voting block. This could be our voting block. It's right. It's fresh ground that we can go in there and seize. And it's the reason why he won Nevada. It's the reason why he did so well in Arizona. It's the reason why he wiped California. It's the reason why he did well in Iowa. He was able to go out there and make that argument to those communities by not simply being there with advertisements and pamphlets and flyers, but like, yo, look, I am here in a year in advance. I want to hear your concerns. What are the issues that matter to you? Immigration, pathway to citizenship. We'll talk about that, right? That stuff is always talked about. What about your kids? What about education? What kind of transportation issues do you have, right? Like healthcare, stuff that matters to people in terms of policy that you can put out is what he was concerned about. And look, you know, Bernie Sanders is not the way, the truth, and the light. There are plenty, plenty of problems with Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Plenty of problems with Bernie Sanders. But in terms of just political acumen, right, that to me was a smart strategy to try and win a primary, especially one in where a lot of the states, first states were in the Southwest or had minority populations, immigrant communities, particularly immigrant communities he targeted not just Latinos, immigrant communities. It's how he basically won Iowa was with what we call satellite caucuses. He was able to turn out immigrants from these chicken processing facilities within Iowa. And he basically overcame Pete Buttigieg and the white folk within the state. I mean, he had a plan looking at constituencies, looking at their issues, the kind of issues that they have, their policies, things that they want, and then go about doing that. But- And listen, it's very accurate. Terry pretty much- said, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to say I've done it before. And that's going to be, and like, he, he's like, Trump and I've done it before. Right. And Terry McAuliffe is somehow like somebody that we all want to go back to. Like who even remembers Terry McAuliffe? Like, like seriously, like seriously. Uh, and I know, I know we're getting a little bit long in this. So I want to make sure that uh, I don't waste your time. So I, okay. I, I, oh, cool, cool. So we're good. We're good. So I, 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 I do want to ask you, and of course, we have talked about the sort of hollowness, the, the, the venalness that the Democratic Party has represented itself, or at least has presented itself to be, has revealed itself to be in this particular race. It is really incredible that that is the case. The fact that the amount of time that the mayor of Richmond, the capital of the state, it, like up until a few years ago, due to gentrification, up until a few years ago, but unfortunately due to gentrification, was a majority black city, like over 51% 50%. black in 2010. And now it's 40%. It dropped 11%. Because we are displacing black people out of the city due to gentrification. Displacing have- and replacing. Because white went from, I think, 34 to about 43 and when you look, and when you look, I'm a nerd, but if you look at the gentrification rates and where all of the tax bases is increasing, and you actually overlay it with a redlining map on top of where the foreclosures of 22,009 and 2010 happened, that's exactly the spaces on where it's happening. 
Yeah. It's exactly. crazy. Exactly. And Richmond is one of the most unequal cities in America in terms of wealth and income. I believe last time I did it, I was, I did a paper in college. So back in like 2017, 2018, it was the second most unequal city in America, right up there. And, behind New and the city. second highest in uh, the nation for evictions. And so what LeVar Stoney has decided to do during all of this is essentially exactly what he decided to do with the casino, which is where we're going to go right now, which is the reason, which is the, not only because of your hilarious and also brilliant insight into the governor's race, the casino, bringing in this, these essentially this private capital, these private equity firms, right? This sort of stock market driven, finance capital driven way of quote unquote developing a city by allowing these new condominiums to go up all along the 64 I-95 corridor while like within the city and leading up and uh, leading up to it. And so in calling it so-called housing, meanwhile, rents within the city are skyrocketing, displacing black people, like not investing whatsoever in Shaco, not investing whatsoever in East Richmond, not investing whatsoever in Southside, like what's like at all, like there's no community investment. I mean, the first thing this guy was trying to do once he got in office was talking about a stadium. Stadiums, like even if, even if you could bring a stadium, stadiums are known to be literally money sinks for cities. They don't develop anything. They just sit there and rot. It doesn't, I don't understand how we get, anyway, because it's a public you know, at bets, it's just like a public good, right? It's like a, it's like a very, very, very expensive library, right? And which was crazy to me that like, <laughs> we gave away all the most valuable pieces of land, and but we were going to keep the Coliseum. And I always jokingly say, it's like someone saying, hey, let's go half on a banana. I get the banana and you get the peel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to split a banana. It's like, no, you're going to get the, the, the part. <laughs> right. I mean, you'll look, you can't eat the peel for people at home. It's, <laughs> I mean, but, but there's something mean, in there. Right. But if that's what you're looking for. But no, I mean, of course, it, it's, a, it's what I call a, a, a sleight of hand. It's a sophisticated, but it's a simple way to get you to vote yes on something or to get you to support someone for something. Because people, everybody loves sports, right? I mean, who hates sports? Instead of LeVar Stoney investing his time, his resources, and money, into organizing the city to turn out for Terry McCullough. Please inform the good people at home. What was LeVar Stoney doing during all of this time as campaign co-chair of Terry McCullough's campaign? What was LeVar Stoney and Al Sharpton and Lord help us, Missy Elliott? What were Ooh, they very quickly doing? started reconsidering after she learned the history of the of uh, the people pitching this casino? He was out here pitching the casino. So, uh huh, pitching a casino, which is exactly why this episode's name is Democrats Gambling Addiction. Yeah, they was making all the wrong bets. <laughs> would you? I mean, and the thing is, is we allow sports betting in the state. So look, look, I'm I'm against gambling overall. I don't want to say morally. Yeah. Right. I don't say it's like morally wrong. That's the conversation to have, whatever. But in terms of like ethics, in terms of harm to people, there is actual material harm done to people by these casinos, people getting addicted to gambling. And the fact that it would turn into a tax revenue stream is very detrimental. That is almost like, I mean, we have state run liquor stores in the state. And once again, the morality of alcohol, right? When it comes to gambling, when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to drugs, right? 
it's a demand problem. It's not a supply problem. You're not going to stop it with legislation or police, right? That's the reason why you legalize it and you regulate it. But the thought that people would still allow the casino to come into the city and be a quote-unquote revenue source is really what's ridiculous. So if you could please, for the good people at home, detail to us what the Black leadership, the Black misleadership was doing inside of Richmond, leading up to the, uh, not only in the casino fight, but leading up, of course, to this, uh, the, the election. Well, after voting for decades to underfund Southside, and even in the last community improvements budget, not giving what would have been equitable to fix the infrastructure of Southside, after saying no to Southside behind closed doors, decided to come in front of the city and say the yes that Southside needed wasn't the investment and the funds and the tax dollars that were due them. Uh, but a casino was the reason, uh, was, was really what they needed. That was the yes that they needed. And, you know, saying it's more than a casino. But again, hotels and small area spaces and small area arenas, which, by the way, you said was impossible during Navy Hill. No one would come here and, and do that type of small area plan. And yet, yet again, here it is, but it was attached to a casino was what they said it was was the best plan for. And so, and, and, and you know, and I have to give my hats off to Catherine Jordan for, she voted actually against the casino, the only person that did. And during the election, she said, I'm not getting into this. We got to get our people elected. And even during the, you know, Democratic meeting where they were talking about, do we want to have a sample ballot where we tell people to vote yes or no on the casino? And the consensus pretty much was, yo, this is divisive. Why we divide our own base in a time when we need them to be focused, let's leave it off. And so we decided to leave it off. And then what happens two weeks later? Oh, McAuliffe. We got McAuliffe to endorse it. We got Ralph North oh, to endorse have mercy. it. We got, we, got, we got the city council members to endorse it. We got, and it's like, could you just not touch this? Could you not? Could you, could you just not? <laughs> all, all it requires you to do is not. It, we are requiring you to do nothing. Just don't. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a political favor to him that the casino didn't pass. Because could you imagine if you're mayor of the city, campaign co-chair for Terry McAuliffe, and you're pushing a casino, and we got all these losses going on, and the one thing that you spent your dedication on that actually got passed was a casino, Cass would be like, what in the world is up with your priorities, fam? I mean, that should have been the question to begin with. And that was the question of many Black activists within Richmond and activists, period, which is, what are your priorities? Like, what are you doing? Like, what exactly is it that you are? Who asked for this? It's the same and, and, thing. Yeah, it's the same thing about the, the sports arena. Who asked for that? Who wants that? We said investment. We yeah. want jobs. Oh, you mean private companies to come in and exploit you with low wage? No, 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 no. We mean meaningful work. Like, Richmond needs internet. I live in a place with shitty internet. Internet mm. could be a public utility. All that it would take. All it would take is just a little bit of public funds. We already, we literally already have the cabling within the city. What in the world are we doing without a public utility when it comes to internet? Like we got, we got plenty of infrastructure sitting around in Richmond that is dilapidated, is falling apart, and we're not going to do anything about it. We got plenty of kids to educate. We got plenty of trees to plant. We got plenty of infrastructure to build. And you, you look around and your idea is to attract some private capital firm for a casino and you're going to like dress it up with like, Oh, we're going to get hundreds of millions of dollars. And are you, are you serious? After all the ideas we got from the Richmond 300 project. And then also like 
what's super frustrating is they could have found out how the city felt about this way earlier, but they wanted to play games, right? People saying, well, that's how democracy works. During the Navy Hill campaign, you turn people out to vote against having a referendum. And then when it's a city survey about, hey, what do you all think about casinos? It wasn't even an option to say, I don't want one. Could you imagine if in April the city got to say, now, fam, we don't want that. How much energy you could have developed into maybe one of the ideas out of the Richmond 300 plan and during election season, how much more energy people would have, how many canvases would be available, how many people weren't exhausting their calls on turning out people to vote on on a casino like. And what Mr. Trippman is alluding to is the fact that black people within the city of Richmond, we still represent. A, a significant constituency within the city, even though we are being displaced by gentrification that LeVar Stoney and the neoliberal administration within like the actual state government is overseeing. So let, we're not going to obfuscate that. Ralph Northam may have made some serious material concessions to us. He's still neoliberal, basically doing like continuing Barack Obama's work of the just sort of neoliberalizing the economy. So I just want to put that out there. But what Chipman is referring to is this when you introduce a casino like that, there is naturally going to be differing opinions among the Black community. We're not a monolith. We don't all agree on everything, right? It's the reason why we have public discussions. We have disagreements on policy. Clearly, with um, Ms. Sears <laughs> out, out there talking about homeboys. And when you decide that you're going to split the organizing base within Richmond itself, because Richmond isn't just about Richmond, right? Richmond is Chesterfield. Richmond is Henrico. Richmond is Hanover. Richmond is Powhatan. I mean, Richmond is a large part of the state. Richmond would make calls for the state. And instead of focusing on calling and canvassing and online advocacy for a certain candidate getting behind Terry McAuliffe and at least pushing the vote, right? And having to, all right, all right, okay, let's do it, right? Instead of doing that, they split this Black voter base, this Black activist base within Richmond. Instead of doing that work, it's now dedicated to fighting a casino because it is exploitative and it is literally based, it is predicated of essentially losing their bets or even worse, winning on a regular basis so that people keep coming back. It's based on a predatory system of making money instead of- And, and, here's, and here's the other part of it too, because some people could say, well, we could, we, could do, we could do all of those at the same time, but here's the thing, you're associating your candidate with a highly polarizing and unpopular project. Yep. Right. Which is why I voted in, in the Democratic Party. I said, I said, look, don't put this on the ballot, y'all, because you have to recruit people to volunteer. And if someone says so, if I pass out a sample ballot, I got to say vote for Terry and vote for the casino. What if I like Terry, but I don't like the casino? Right. And what if there are people who you're call making calls for? Hey, man, make sure you go vote for the casino. And by the way, go Terry McCullough and say what? Hold up, Terry, Terry's supporting the casino. And then you send out a mailer, right? Which is is crazy. So they send out a mailer that Youngkin equals Trump. Right. Right. And Dr. King says racism is both prejudice and economic exploitation. And people are more apt to recognize the prejudice part, but not oppose the economic exploitation part. So you have the Democratic Party and I guess their surrogates sending out a mailer, which I got, which was crazy. I see Trumpism with Yunkin sent out by the Democratic Party. <laughs> and then I get 
Casino One with Trump's business plan of a casino on it. Biggest picture I see next to it is Terry McCullough. So now, if I don't like Trumpism with Yunkin or I don't like Trumpism with a casino, now psychologically it's linked to Terry McCullough. And it's like, why do why do that damage to that? Every Terry McCullough voter does not like a casino. And now when Terry McCullough, who I wasn't sure I really was excited about turning out for anyway, now endorses the thing I feel a guttural uh, about, just, just why? Exactly. Why do we have to run Hillary Clinton is so unnecessary that we have to literally run the most hated figure on the right against the guy who literally, like... People forget how bad of a guy Donald Trump is. Not only is he the like sexual assault grab him by like their genitals guy, he is the kind of guy to bring Bill Clinton's sexual assault accusers to the debate and sit them in the front row in front of Hillary Clinton. If you don't believe me, go ahead and Google it. That is what Donald Trump did. He knew the kind of hatred that the Republican Party had for the Clintons. He knew that. He knew who his base was. And Democrats don't know who they're based on. And it is wild to me that we put a ballot initiative in Richmond of all places. In Richmond! You could have easily gotten 60,000 more votes if you organized against Yunkin. I mean, you got $50 million. You really, you can't hire no organizers? Really? You're going to blacklist people? Really? Really? You just can spit in people's faces over and over and over again. And you just think people are just going to turn up to vote for you. And exactly what we were talking about earlier, sorting that one of my, one of my all-time favorite movies is The Fighting Temptations. <laughs> oh, yeah. And if, and if y'all haven't seen that movie, I bought you the soundtrack see. as a kid, man. I'm, I still <laughs> have it, probably. Yo, look, I still watch that movie to this, to this day. That intro song with Aunt Sally, yo, look, yo, look, that's, that is the Black church. And it's right. in Georgia, it's in the 80s, right? It's the same kind of Black church that would vote for a Jimmy Carter the, on, on a sort of a moral basis, right? Of course, right. there's the racism. But really, where I'm getting at with this is that, especially within Richmond, there's a large, older Black population. Oh, yeah. My man's Talk Jimmy. about Jimmy Carter. But one I, of my faves. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy Carter is, look, Jimmy Carter has issues when it comes to like, quote unquote, liberalizing the economy and all the rest of that. And East Timor in particular, like you want to Google East Timor under Chomsky. When it comes to like emissions, when vehicles, solar panels, when he he delivered an address to the American, a a president sat down at the Oval, in the Oval Office, uh, in the Oval Office, in front of the camera, behind that desk. And stated to the American public, it is no longer about who one is. It is about what one owns. It was this Christian argument against materialism, right? Because Jimmy Carter is a Christian. I mean, this is the same man. He still teaches Sunday school. Right. Because Jimmy Carter's that dude. Like, he's the real deal. He builds houses, habitats, and humanity. I think he owns a house that's, like, maybe worth 200 grand, not even. Like, he is that guy. He is the only president recognized by the King Center for Nonviolence because they say, now you know how people be reporting deaths, but they say no lives lost during war, foreign or domestic during his presidency and the only president to be able to say that. In the case of East Timor, there weren't American lives lost in those in, in that conflict. East Timor is probably one of the most thorough genocides to happen in the 20th century, probably even above. I mean, it's on par with the Holocaust. But, and Noam Chomsky talks about that. But that's, that's something we'll put aside, right? That's, that's U.S. empire 
Not not what I'm talking yeah. about. Just for the sake of accuracy, thought I might mention right. that. But in the case of Jimmy Carter, there, it, my point of this is, is that within Richmond, that black Christian base would look at the casino because I know from my time in the black church would look at that casino and look at Terry McAuliffe, and I bet a few of them would either forget that there was an election that day or would actively stay home. They wouldn't go out and vote for Youngkin. Now, now I mean, we, we know a few in the church who will go out and, and vote for Youngkin. Um, yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. Right, right. But there's, they, there's, there's a heavy pro-life movement of Black people within the church, too. Yes, but usually we can sway them with the fact that, hey, they're racist. <laughs> like, yeah, they don't yeah. want you to vote. Like, they, they, it's yeah. not even so much like, oh, like, like, oh, they're teaching critical race theory, which really doesn't even land with like older black people. Like, no, just tell them they don't want you to vote. For older black people, that was their struggle. Right. Like, my grandmother sure. was sure. present. They said they're going to do what? Right. Yeah. Exactly. We can get out to vote. You know, let, right. let me go and call Aunt Cynthia. Let, let me get them on the phone. That's exactly that kind of thinking, the souls to the polls. The, the, the casino could take the wind right out of those sails. Right. And that is exactly, is probably a contributing factor to Terry McCullough's loss. But can you detail to me what the fight was like against the casino on the local level and, and sort of the resistance you faced and saw from, of course, the Stoney administration when it came to, you know, the, the being mayor of the city, but also from the state government, uh, Terry McAuliffe. Just sort of what was that campaign like against the casino? What did that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think you get you get the typical kind of corporate pile on and, and it's it's kind of what happens with it's the casino lobbying strategy. Right. Um if you haven't heard my podcast, you can go to bit.ly slash rigged casino, which I kind of talk about. You can get from a global concentrated perspective how the casino industries work. Pretty much long before it's even you see anything on a ballot or in a commercial, they go out and they pay who they pay, right? So when you look at who was having the bill about bringing game to Virginia, uh, Luke Torian already got his money from, from them, right? Then when you think about who's on the selection committee for the city, Right. Uh, and I don't see Addison getting any money, but Ellen Robertson, she did. She got her money. Um, uh, and then uh, several other people got paid as well. Mayor Stoney got paid directly. Uh, Councilman Jones got paid directly. Um, and that uh, in the state of Virginia is legal. Yep. Yeah. It is, it's legal in the state of Virginia right. to do what they did. Yeah. And in 1996, when uh, gambling had such bad social impacts that Congress said, we're going to have a moratorium on expanding them. And one of the recommendations they had was there should not be able for casino lobbyists, the people connected to them to give donations to that because of what is happening. But, you know, it's, it pretty much happens. In the, and then they just say, Hey, revenue, 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 revenue. Right. Um, uh, and so you see, you saw a lot of the talking points uh, beyond that. And, but what's interesting is, you know, my first introduction is that I remember when the Pamunkey tribe was, was doing one, I was in a Bellmead, um, Oak Grove Bellmead uh, community meeting. And overwhelmingly, the room was like, no, no, absolutely no. And I see Leonard Sledge in the back of the room with his mouth agape like, oh, he said, that ain't go how I thought it was going to go. And the next thing you know, you see a city survey that says we will be having our first town hall around casinos. It's like, no, 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 this is your second 
because the first one said, hail to the naw, to the naw, naw, naw. And so <laughs> what did they do? Then they created a city survey without the ability to express what Brother Sled saw live and in person, what Ellen Robinson saw live and in person. That Richmond was like, nah, we don't want that. And so they said, we're going to pitch this because we got paid to pitch this. We didn't get paid to question and 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 uh, see what the dangers of this be or any type of mitigation. And that's what another thing that's disturbing. As harmful and as open as it is for what the casinos do to communities, there was no vetting by the city about like, what are we going to do to, to remedy this, right? There wasn't enough information to know that responsible gaming is a casino lobbyist ploy so that people can gamble and once they've drained their money and they're in crisis, then they can come and say, hey, put me on a list so that I don't whatever, because 60 percent of my revenue has to come from gambling addicts in order for this to happen. There was none of this, none of these things that happened. Right. Uh, and so then you see the pile on of the people that got paid. And then they say, hey, this is this is what this is what uh, the, the head of Virginia Legislative Black Caucus wants. This is what the governor wants. This is what your council member wants. This is what the mayor wants. And they thought they would be able to say, and this is what your neighbor wants, but the neighbors felt differently. And you've got to, uh, got to give my hats off to Quentin Robbins and the, and the team of Richard for all that was doing the canvassing. You had no casino RVA who was like, look, man, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, this needs, the truth needs to be advertised at least. So at least people can see the other side of it. And then, you know, myself, you know, doing some research and doing some messaging and thanks to the news channels that were able to help us to, to know that, Hey, there's another side to this coin that a lot of people didn't even know that Congress, after seeing the social impact, said maybe this is something we shouldn't be doing, right, at that level. And so casinos didn't become more safe, right? And there's nothing that changed about how dangerous casinos were. The only thing that changed was an exchange of money between casino lobbyists and the people that were making the decisions. And when you see that global playbook, that's exactly what happened here in Richmond. And I'm so glad exactly that you were here, Chipman, in order to break that down for people around the country, but particularly in Richmond, because the majority of people who listen to this are in Richmond. But it's to, it is really to drive home this point that this sort of neoliberal idea that we can just sort of say revenue and that we don't have to raise taxes on anyone is really, is, is at the <laughs> core of this. And the sort of complete blindness to what it would do to your base. The fact that Richmond for not for all is not dedicating its resources to organizing for the Democratic candidate and is instead fighting a Democratic, a, the Democratic candidate's endorsed unpopular project in this. I mean, like this guy hasn't, this guy left Richmond and no one has seen him since then. Even when he was here, no one yeah. saw him. It's not like yeah. he has a connection with the city. So you got this white dude coming back saying, it's my turn. And by the way, I'm going to push this building on you that you don't want. Like, I'm just thinking in my mind, I'm looking around at, at, the, at the city skyline of Richmond. First of all, the monstrosity that is the Dominion Energy Building is, ugh. like, I mean, it's, it's a pretty building when the sunlight's hitting it, right? I'm not going to hate. But still, like, the fact that it's <laughs> So we're going to hate on the architect. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, I'm not, look, look, I, I, look I'm sure a BCU architecture major, engineering major, really put their foot into that. I'm sure they did. I mean, I hate. It's a beautiful building. But really? Like you, we need a casino on the skyline. Like you look around Richmond and you can't think of anything else that needs to be invested in. You don't think of, you can't think of anything else to do 
but this casino. And it yeah. is, it, it drives at the core of exactly what we were talking about, which is just this total disconnection between the Democratic Party and its base. Totally just doesn't understand, and even better, is willfully ignorant. Because it's exactly what you just stated. There was not one, but two representatives who saw what the city did not want in person and instead elected, yo, look, we got money behind this. We got the ball rolling behind this. Essentially, we don't want to stop this. It's almost like the Keystone XL pipeline, right? We've been talking about this since like 2010, like late 20 to 2000. Right. That pipeline is no longer economically viable. It hasn't been economically viable probably a decade at this point. It's, that's not the point. The point is twofold. One, they've already collected rich people's money, so they have a fiduciary responsibility to continue the project. <laughs> so right. nobody gets sued. That's and they got to recoup one. that money from the legal fees. Exactly. But also, exactly. But also, number two, we said it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. We we said it, so it's going to occur. And that's it's the, the, way it's it's the same. Be. And, you know, and this is, you know, whether it's down from Clinton to McAuliffe to Stoney, that whole kiss the ring it's my turn. This is what I want to do. And y'all going to get in line. And the revolutionary spirit of Richmond said, no, we ain't finna do that. Actually, we're not. But thanks, though. <laughs> and, uh, but thanks. And what's amazing to me is I think the final ballot total for Richmond, I think for the casino was like, it was around like eleven or 12,000 votes, right? Uh, I'm trying to remember what the ballot was. I just remember the percentages. But I mean, they lost by about 2,000 votes. But uh, let me see if I can check the old VPAT. And, you know unless there's some trickery involved tomorrow, but no, uh, the yes votes had 37,999. The no votes had 39,824. Oh, it's 39. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I saw early vote totals. And as far as I could see the, at that point, it was about 11,000 votes, but the no's basically already had it. Cause I was, I was looking at yeah. your Twitter. <laughs> I was looking at your Twitter. Like, man, I, I was surprised. I was like, man, okay. All right, man. Yo, I was happy for you guys. I was so happy for you all. I mean, I know, uh, you know, Gary Broderick is uh, yeah, yeah, a major yeah. part of is a major part of Richmond for all. He's so busy though. That guy yeah. is dedicated to the work. He does the work for a living, and it's amazing that he does that. Um, I really, I wanted to get him on for the Labor Union podcast this week, but he was in Georgia last week, and now he's running around Richmond trying to do this at the last second, and now he's trying to take a rest. And I'm just like, come on for like 30 minutes yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like i will like i will come to you with the microphone just come talk to me no but yeah he's got stuff to do but he's a really he's a he's a very smart guy he's a nice guy um you guys should go follow gary broderick you should definitely follow tripman for richmond up on twitter um go listen to his podcast but i mean the 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 idea that these organizations that organizations who would be organizing the city of richmond and our voter base in order to bring out the, in, in order to bring out the coalition for a Democratic candidate, not because we even love Terry McCullough, but because Lord have mercy, Glenn Youngkin. And now we got to hear serious mouth. Tell us some homeboy. Lord have mercy. Mixing my homeboy. Oh, mm. my goodness. My goodness. The fact that, you, that we have that, we have to organize against, and the fact that that was not happening due to some, due to money is really ridiculous. It's really yeah. ridiculous. And I just, I don't, I just don't understand why. I mean, I mean, I, look, I got to stop saying I don't understand because <laughs> we get it. I get it. It's just, it's incredible to me that even if you did want to keep power, these are the things incumbent upon you to think about <laughs> in order to keep yeah. power. But because it is this kiss my ring, it's my turn kind of royalty 
feeling when it comes to politics in this state and also with the Clintons, we're going to have these takes that are just bereft of any facts or any history or what or the facts on the ground. We're going to have yeah. total disregard for our base, and we don't care if we split it because and literally. I, and I don't even think I'm sorry, but I don't even think Terry McCullough and Lavar Stoney, Ralph Northam, anybody else thought like, oh, we're going to divide our base, right? they're ignorant of their base because they are so invested in the culture that you were talking about, which is this royalty. It's, it's hard to win when you're ignorant of your base and you're ignorant of your opponent. You know what I mean? Your opponent's base. And like, where's, where can I pull some here? And, and like you, <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe he, <laughs> I guess he thought this was an experience battle, but when your person when your opponent is running on, we're tired of the entrenched politicians and you run not just an entrenched politician, but an entrenched politician who already did the job. It's like, do you, do you think people don't remember? Like they've already been under governor McCullough. Like it's, it's not like a so young, young can, can, can run on a hypothetical. You've never been under me. So I'm whatever you want me to be. Right. It's like Obama hope and change. What should I hope for? What should I change? What you going to change? Whatever you imagine me to do. And you can do that when you haven't been there, but it's just, it's just, uh, it's just strange, man. But it's like, I guess people, people forget that Al Gore has the internet and you can go back and look at things like, just like, you know, Alfred Hughes and Alfred Liggins and Kathy Hughes coming up saying we're here about economic empowerment when you can clearly Google when they lost the three year campaign, I mean, the casino was what one year, one and a half. They lost a three year campaign against back black musicians being able to get their proper royalty rights with the HR, what, 848, uh, performance rights act right so it's like you 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 spent three years of your whole life keeping black people from getting their rights and these are the black people that work for you but now you think i'm supposed to believe you suddenly care about labor and you suddenly care about economic empowerment it's just like nah yeah and the thing is they they not only expect their voters to not remember who they are and not to remember the things that they support they just expect their voters just to show up because they are who they are or even worse, that their opponents are who they are, so they're going to be scared to come out and vote. Basically, again, it's the Hillary Clinton strategy. I, I dare you to vote against. I, I dare you to stay home. I dare you to vote for the Republican. I dare you not to vote for me, is essentially what they're stating. And it's incredibly yeah. dangerous. <laughs> Everyone ends up losing those bets, because that, that kind of bet that they're making is not just a bet on their political career. When you are voting for the Democratic ticket in Virginia, really anywhere, we are, I'm a black communist. Look, I'm not saying that for for Mr. Chipman. He (laughs) is his own person, okay? His views do not equal mine. But I'm a black communist, and I, the idea that I'm voting for Terry McCulloch is, oh my goodness, he's just going to introduce this, that. No, he is going to materially make sure that the policies of Northam are going to, at the very least, stay in place to be sure that the harm that we have reduced against our communities black, white, purple, brown, pink, you know, whatever, native and non-native, immigrant and non-immigrant are preserved so that we, so especially for trans people, so that we do not continue this harm because who is going to end up losing in the end when these bets don't work, work out? But McCullough backed up t- on that. He said, he, he said, he said, I'll let the schools choose. Incredible, but incredible, <laughs> incredible. Because he thought is- he could win them white women back with that. The incredible thing about that is that we end up losing. Our communities end up losing. Terry McAuliffe, at the end of the day, he might have a bad day in the press. He might be ashamed of himself. He might not have his name in the governor's mansion again. But fundamentally for him, nothing changes. He's still white. He's still rich. 
He's still going to do whatever he wants. He's still going to get. He's still going to get advisory positions. Nothing's going to change he, for him. He's still going to take three weeks off and go back to getting the bag from CNN as a contributor. Exactly. But and the thing is, is that or, or and then go work for the Clintons or go work in Obama world, right? Or even better, go work in Joe Biden's camp. Go work in Joe Biden's camp, even though he's more conservative than Joe Biden. And yeah. it is ridiculous to me that we that the kind of gambling that Democrats did and the fact that we lost that it was their bet that is going to cost us at the end of the day, mm-hmm. um, because we are going to lose. Our communities are going to lose. Like we, like as I said, we were going to get resentencing on the table next year, and that is not going to happen anymore because Republicans are now in control of the House of Delegates. That is yeah. not going to happen anymore because the Attorney General is now. And look, we—I think that's the next place I want to go with this. Attorney General-elect Miares of Virginia is now introducing the idea, and will soon be in, introducing along with delegates to the administration to the house of delegates a law that states essentially that we are going to have the attorney general's office which generally in virginia only serves as an advisory department for like state officials and clarifying laws and defending the state and stuff like that to now they're going to step in the attorney general himself is going to step in to interfere in cases in individual cases in Virginia, if a police chief or a police department, a sheriff believes that their court, that the Commonwealth attorney that is elected in the state of Virginia, we elect our Commonwealth attorneys, they're not appointed, that we elected, if they're not doing their jobs, we are essentially going to nullify their decision. It's a police because- state. It's exactly what it is. That's exactly the part of the argument. That's why I'm going to talk to Professor Manisha Sinha. I don't know if you've read her book, The Counter-Revolution of Slavery, um, uh, Politics and Ideology in Antebellum, South Carolina. I read that book uh, about two years ago. It is an important book because it, it demonstrates to us that there is this idea within the conservative and neoconservative circles that there is going to be a one-party state and that we have control over Black people, right? I said this in Johnny Got His Gun, repeal the Second Amendment. Second Amendment, I don't know if I hate to hurt y'all's feelings at home. I know y'all not gonna like my take on guns. America just loves their guns. But the Second Amendment was created in order to create, quote unquote, police forces, militias, in order to police and patrol Black people, and also to go out and murder and conquer, murder Native people and take their land. That is what the Second Amendment is for. I'm so sorry if you think it's for something else, but oh boy, I got bad news for you. That's what the Second Amendment's there for, okay? Modern interpretation, as I said, there is another conversation. And if a Black people try to become a well-regulated militia, then the law is going to change like they did in California for the Black Panthers. Yup, yup. Black Panthers entered entered the state house when Ronald Reagan was governor, and next thing you know, the guns, oh no, oh no. Did we say guns? We meant gun control. No, no, we got to restrict this. We can't have it on camera. We can't have them in public. We can't, you can't have assault rifles. Oh no, we can't have any of that. Because remember for the vast majority of time in the country, black people not only were not allowed to vote, not only weren't even considered human beings, they, they weren't even allowed to learn, most of the time learn how to read without having limbs cut off or having yeah. their bodies ripped apart. The idea we could own guns is just ridiculous. But my point is about that is that there is a thread that is going on throughout American history 
of an anti-democratic sentiment that if we, that of state power, specifically not even local, but state power. If we can take over the state government, we can have the state come in, not only nullify what the federal government says, not only nullify what courts say, but also now we're going to go back and try to undermine the actual um, the actual law enforcement branch of Virginia government, which are Commonwealth attorneys, not the attorney generals. And the thing is, is that many people in Virginia, because of how poor the education system is, don't understand that, that is, there's a fundamental difference between the two. It, attorney general does not equal the Department of Justice, right? It's not the same thing as on the federal level. Not the same thing. Attorney general inside of Virginia performs very different functions. And this guy is looking, Miares is looking to change the role of the attorney general into something like the federal government, except now he is essentially looking to go after, he's been going after political prisoners, most definitely. So if there's another Black Lives Matter, oh my God. And, and you know who he had up there, right? You know he, who he had, Miara's had on either side of him, right? He had Arrestafield, police chief. So Chesterfield, police chief beside him. Uh-huh. And on the other side, Loudoun County, police chief. Mm. And you know what's happened up at Loudoun. And I look, and I got loud earlier this week <laughs> about what's happened up at Loudoun. But it's incredible to me that there is this push, this same push to restrict the locality, to restrict the locality from being able to control democracy from being able to reign it is this state control state power and it's exactly what you said it is a police state so if you could the police are the party police are the one party i mean it's a great time to to rush up on world history about when um you know when militaries overthrow overthrow them that's 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 the that's the process of election for the for the police power and so this sentiment that you know Blue Lives Matter, that a profession has become a life now, right? And yeah, yeah, it's, that's a whole nother one. But I'd, I'd encourage people to read the unedited speech that brother um, uh, John Lewis planned on giving at the March on Washington that talks about how we are currently living, they were currently living under a police state in Danville, Virginia. Brother John Lewis was warning us about a police state in Virginia way back in the 60s. So don't think it's it's not that crazy. And again, that that the difference between Herring and this guy was 40,000 votes. But y'all wanted to bet on a casino. Mm, mm, mm. And we and we and as I said, we lost that bet. We all we all lost that bet. And you're exactly right about that splitting of the base, that splitting of the vote, which is, as I said, the reason why I wanted to talk to you. But can you sort of can you with Miara's move? I mean, I mean, I guess. Man, man, let me let me tell you, somebody who worked as a legislative aide in the last general assembly session, you wouldn't believe the type of bills Republicans were trying to pass. Right? You can hit people with your car if you feel you're threatened. You can run over a protester. That kind of stuff passed in places like Oklahoma and Kansas. That stuff passed. Right? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. You know, that's why I was telling people, look, man, I can't because I I knew the writing was on the wall, but I said, y'all. If you're on the couch for Terry, please get up off the couch and hold up the house. Please do. Please at least do that. Please at least do that. Because the things I saw coming up in them subcommittees that actually came up to a vote, fam, insane. Because you have to understand there's still a backlash. And that's what's crazy, right? McCullough didn't mention the protest at one point at all. Not a picture of a protester, not a picture of 
not a mention of all these other types of things. He said, I'm going to get up here and I'm going to fund the police and everybody and their mama was talking about, we going to, I don't support to fund the police. Didn't have one picture of a protest or anything like that. But you know, remember the protest? Yunkin and them crazy people. All them crazy bills that seem like there's no way that could happen could potentially happen. And if it comes up to a tie vote, oh, simplify Sears is going to be the tie breaking vote on that mug. Yunkin know the police ain't coming for his white children. So he going to sign that joint. And the thing is, for him, as I stated earlier, right, 84% on a national level, cops vote, voted 84% at an 84% clip for Donald Trump. So just, I, you, you know who they, you know who they are. We all right. know who police are. We know who they are. Black and white, purple, green, we know who they are. We know why the morale is low if they think that civilians could actually get oversight of them. Exactly. We know why they state that. It's not only because, as I said on Twitter, they're weak and feckless. It is because they, and not only because they're the biggest crybabies in the world, who are also the most brutal abusers in the country. Richmond is really, in terms of per capita, is still second in terms of like brutality outside of a place like Portland. So, I mean, it is really extensive. The kind of legislation that is going to come up now that we've lost the House of Delegates. And I said this earlier, I would prefer us to have a Republican House of Delegates and Senate with a Democratic governor, because then we could at least blame right, the Senate and the House and get it back. But now that we have a Republican governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, and we have a Democratic Senate and a Republican House, it's even worse than a trifecta, because now they're going to be able to not only pummel the Democrats on the federal level, which is literally just up the street, like in Washington. I mean, like the Democrats are right. The Democratic base really in Virginia is in the Southeast, in the seven cities, in Richmond, and then in the North, right, right outside D.C., the way that you go after Democrats now is going to be getting up there and shouting about Democrats' priority agenda and then tying the Democrats not, tying imaginary priorities of the Democrats like CRT and defund the police on the national level. There's no defunding the police. Joe Biden ain't defunding nothing. Okay, that's not going to happen. But, but to tie that the imaginary issues and also the failures of the Democratic Party when it comes to policy that Joe, the promises Joe Biden made, student death cancellation, public option, uh, things like that. I meant for two thousand. I meant fourteen hundred dollars, not two thousand dollars. That kind of that kind of bullshit. Tying that to Virginia Democrats and pummeling them with the CRT message and pummeling them with the fact that they are obstructing our our the will of the people essentially on a state level. That is really what's, what's worrying me. And the fact that we learned that literally a thousand votes is what came across these five different counties or excuse me, these five different house districts, a thousand votes is the difference between, um, is the difference between uh, Democrats having a majority and not having a majority or having a split, uh, a power sharing agreement and not. Literally, that is the difference. Literally, that's the difference. And I'm so glad that you told people to please go out and vote for their local representative. Because <laughs> I mean, if, if you're exactly, if for nothing else, let's just prevent them. We from lost Delegate Joshua budget. Cole. We lost Lasheries Aired. We lost, you know what I mean? Like, we got washed. We got washed. Why? Because the, the local party candidates were essentially removed. House of Delegates was removed from McCulloch. McCulloch was just in his own little world. He wasn't coordinating with anybody. He just had largely nothing to do with these state house races. And he certainly wasn't going to be a driver of turnout for them, right? So it's just, it is, and McClellan comes from a state district. So, I mean, there's that. But it's just, it is. Yeah, McClellan was out there you know, campaigning for the house people too. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, moving and shaking, she did her job. I'm not, I'm not blaming her. My point is, is that there, there was no tie between the governor's race and the state house, none. And there was no introducing any stakes because the policy that the state house has been doing, the work that the state house was doing, the work Delaire, the work that McClellan in particular has been doing on issues like Racial justice. That was that was Carolina. that was crazy to me. It's like incredible. you, you, you had Obama in town. You should have had everybody in in a in a house race up in that joint. He should have been having a row of pictures. Just instead yes, you of can. Barack Obama. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. <laughs> and that should have been on everybody's Instagram. It's just like <laughs> yo. And the thing is, that would have. <laughs> but the thing is, I don't necessarily. <laughs> Uh, Sasha Malik, go to bed. Uh, yes, we can. Uh, Jen, you have a choice. I want you to go and vote for my friend, Terry McCullough. <laughs> you know, I wish I was much. saying this about a black woman, but Terry thought Terry's going to learn what Hillary learned when she tried to run against me. Uh, no, you can't. <laughs> Yo, I love Barack Obama. Bob on. It was awesome. But yo, that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. Some people could be forgiven and think, yo, we have Barack Obama on the podcast today, y'all. <laughs> but like but I yo, wish I wish Obama picked up the phone and called his friend Terry a while back and said, uh, yes, you can, but no, you shouldn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what I wanted to hear Obama say in Richmond. God dang it. You know Barack Obama told Joe Biden. Not to run, right? Yeah, he said, uh, you know, you don't have to do this, Joe. That's exactly <laughs> what he said. He said, you don't have to do this, Joe. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. But he still has those class interests. These corporate Democrats, once again, not understanding, not getting what it is, not learning lessons from past elections, not learning the lesson of Barack Obama. Barack Obama won on a national level, but we got killed on local, state, and the national level in terms of legislature. We got killed, like just yeah, because one white people lost their mind, mm-hmm. and and the people who were like, you know what, I'm not racist, so I'm gonna vote for the black president. But in in, in these next elections, again, I'm doubling down on the home base, right. and that's exactly what happened. But I guess because Terry thought he was the curse breaker. By only 2.5% that he was immune to the switchback, I bet <laughs> I made the wrong bet. Man, <laughs> man, my goodness. I mean, just, I mean, and playing dice with our lives, man. And the thing is, right. it's not just abortion. It's easier to bet it, someone else's money. It really is. Because you, you know that brother did not understand the gravity of what was about to happen when at his joint saying, hey, I, I think we're still going to win, folks. And then he still was dancing with no music, just dancing. Like, Brother, just, what you dancing about? If you look at if you look at I don't think that was his daughter, the sister in the green jacket. She like she was holding back tears. But but Terry was uh, Terry was up there dancing because he's lost. And, I mean, because he's and, he's crazy. He those kind of people are. Li- I mean, like people often like you'll look, people call me crazy sometimes. You'll look. I take it. I'll take it. All right. Whatever. That guy is legitimately nuts. Like people like him are legitimately nuts. Like they are so self-absorbed. They refuse to have any humility in public. They refuse to be wrong at all in public. They don't want to lose. I, I, I just say he's disconnected because I know there's some, some of my friends who have mental health issues who I would very much uh, uh, 
hang out with more than more than somebody who's out here dancing when you're at the cusp of having people like Jason Miares turn us into a police state. But I guess because he knew the police ain't coming for him, he'd go ahead and dance. But uh but yeah, it's uh it's uh, again their priorities were wrong. The they they misunderstood, they couldn't read the field, they misread the field, which is worse. Um and then they they heads on the wrong bets and just like they bet on a casino, they bet uh, and thought they could win back some some white women and some white moderates, and they found out uh, the wrong. And they way. found out, and here we are. Right, but they and look- and the pain is just like with the casino, just like with the primary. Um, they could have found out earlier and made adjustments, but instead they wanted to make a blacklist for the people who were telling them and showing them how they could have adjusted and they got what they got. Exactly. Exactly. Now the outside of CRT, right outside of obviously this police state that Jason Miares is trying to bring to Virginia. And I really hope the Senate stops him. We like, we got to stay in the ear of our senators who are going to be there until 2023 and just do not allow that through. Do not. Like that, that cannot happen. The idea that the attorney general of the state of Virginia is going to overstep the Commonwealth attorney. I'm not even sure that is constitutional. I'm not even sure that's, I mean, I would literally have to look into how the state government is organized. (laughs) Like that didn't even like that kind of thinking is that right wing psycho shit. (laughs) As I said, these are not Chipman's, these are not Chipman's uh, ideas. These are purely my own. That is that right wing thinking of like, what is a way that I can lock up more people and be more punitive? Let me just find a way to be as punitive and vengeful and ugly as I can to other human beings, right? Beyond that, there's one more thing. Glenn Youngkin was pushing for charter schools. It's pushing for public funding of private schools. We, the, we talked about how now the population of Richmond being Black is in the low 40s now. Instead, it was almost 51% in the early 2000s, in the early 20-teens. And now we are in a situation where essentially, I mean, and it, many people don't know the history of Richmond. Jackson Ward, when you get off 64 and you get on the Chamberlain Avenue exit, you're in Jackson Ward, or you look over to your left. Jackson Ward was a historically Black neighborhood. It existed where I-95 and I-64 sit now. Mm-hmm. Like they, George Romney talked about this, and I talked about this earlier this week in that podcast, where essentially we just ran, we just ran highways straight through black neighborhoods. Those, they did it all. They, they did it in a black uh, neighborhood in Vancouver, Canada, called Hogan's Alley too. It was a concentrated effort to do that. And they display, they not, when you run a highway through there, it's not just physical destruction of homes and neighborhoods and communities and tax bases and families. It's not just that. It is the, displacement of black people and black wealth outside of an area without any sort of recompense or any sort of way to move them it's just this literal bulldozing and so you create what george Romney it's like knocking down public housing without one-to-one replacement or no net loss policies which we're doing right now yep yep exactly exactly 
George Romney called the white high-income noose around the, the neck of Black inner-city America. What do you think this impact is going to have for us? Because say what you want about neolibs, Ralph Northam was dedicated to, no, we're not giving public money to private schools. Actually, no, we're not doing charter school. That's not going to happen, actually. He was at least beholden to the Virginia Education Association, right? At least he had some loyalty to them. Youngkin is like, actually, no, we, fuck all that. In fact, we are going to give public funds to private schools. And it's during this era of COVID and it's during this era of we are seeing the kind of lack of resources and the unpreparedness that cities, especially poorer cities and poorer school districts have when it comes to resources to educating kids during COVID. We've essentially lost a year, two years worth of education with our kids because of the horrible handling of at-home education and online education, but also just lack of resources. But how do you see that playing out? Like, of course, it's going to be bad. But like, oh, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. Ha- <laughs> I'm going to tell you exactly how it's going to happen. Bad. So there is there is a split legacy between s- private schools, right? They're the white people who were like, oh, no, we don't want them black people up in here, right? But then there's the integration happens but these black teachers ain't coming you can you can look at the gordon parks exhibit uh where he where he talks about uh the difference between when his black uh, classmates uh in a black school got high marks and said they were leaders and then they went to a white school and suddenly they were troublesome and all these other types of things and so there's the legacy of black people starting schools because they don't like (laughs) the real concern of like, I don't want my kids being indoctrinated by all this whiteness and all this other crazy stuff. For example, my mom pulled me out of schools, saw them history books and said, Oh no, you and I having my baby's mind. So I was homeschooled. I went to public school for third grade and then I, uh, for second grade. And then I was homeschooled fourth through 11th and I skipped some grades and I graduated early, but there's very much a legacy of fear of white indoctrination and white culture and wanted to provide a safe environment for kids. So there's a lot of black homeschoolers, right? After, after the Black Lives Matter movement that were like, this, this white indoctrination isn't good for my kids. I'm a teacher myself, right? So there's that side. And that's more sort of like maybe where a Dr. Steve Perry would be on the lineup, right? But then there's very much a white people, massive resistance. They ain't gonna be near me. And so this is why I wanna have charter schools. What I predict is that Glenn Youngkin is going to, on the thin line, get a black person to say we're this type of school, but actually it's going to be that white anti-CRT 1776, not 1619, and then put people up and say, why don't you want to fund these black schools? What about black independence? Why do you, why do why do we have to rely on the white system to teach our kids? Why don't we teach our own what you're teaching your own, what the white person told you about? Like Candace Owens saying, the person who taught me about my blackness was Charlie Kirk and Winston Sears saying the person who told us about black business was Richard Nixon. And it's going to be that type of hot, hot mess. And that's how they're going to pitch it and saying, why can't we have black independent schools? But when you probably look at what their roles look like, it's going to be mostly white people up in them joints. But that's what I, but based on how intricate they are now into the identity politics they said they hated but now they adopt to defend their foolishness that's probably what you're going to start seeing and that's who's going to be coming up uh uh in the house and senate meetings to to testify for all these types of things and 
they're just going to exploit some of the uh, real inequities that we see in that. And it's going to lead to further uh, underinvesting. I mean, a lot of times people talk about Brown versus Board of Education. But when you read Thurgood Marshall, he actually said the, 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 the case that actually defunded uh, public schools that was worse than Brown for versus Board of Education because you had separate and unequal was actually a case called Milliken versus Bradley um, out of Detroit. And Richmond actually had a little bit of a uh, in that case as well. And that's the new funding is just extract the money out of the public schools and make it harder for black people because people do these types of things. They have their private schools, but then you have cases where they have a meeting on where you have to go to a meeting in order to justify for the next place of application. And it's at a country club somewhere where black people can't even get into. So those are some of the, some of the trickery that you see when these things come up. And I'd, I'd imagine that playbook is going to kind of happen, but they're going to recruit black faces and to have people assume that the one nature and tradition of private schooling that was more so about black mental liberation, and they're going to try and blur those lines and justify moving that money. That's what my bet would be as I read the field. And that's a smart bet. Look, that's, that, that sounds about white. Um, it, it does. It, it sounds about white. You know, there's this book in my mind I always sticks out whenever I think about private schools is Invisible Hands, The Businessman's Crusade Against the New Deal by Kim Phillips Fine. I hope I can have her on the program sometime whenever. These private schools, especially these private Christian academies, are a, 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 a product of a long-standing tradition of racism within the American church where oh, yeah. you have, yeah, where you have this <laughs> stratification between black people literally have to be in black churches during slavery and white people go to other churches. And that dichotomy has always stayed, right? That's the reason why we call it the black church and, and, and then the church, right? We don't say it white church. Look, the, the private school movement, the racist private school movement uh, that, that, feigned under Christianity was so bad, even Nixon, right? And this is what this is this is the rise of religious right and why, you know, I think it was Pensacola or whatever that racist one was. There were private Christian colleges that were taking money but didn't want to admit black people, right? To the point that Nixon said, we got to find these uh institutions. I can't remember the the language that he used for them, but he said the easiest way to find it is when integration occurred. If they're in a six-year period, something that had Jesus in it or church this or Bible that, look at those those ones. And that's probably going to be the types of universities that are trying to duck and dodge it. And unfortunately, as someone who is a reverend and tries to, to, to live their life under the season of Jesus, it's a shame that that racism was couched under, under such a religious tradition. But when you when you see these people, as I referenced earlier, who have this conservative Christian, the city is Babylon and is evil and the suburbs are are, are great, uh, that you're going to see that type of, that type of gaze and, and, and pitch. So they'll, they'll, there'll be a pitch to the Black community under that type of thing. And then there'll be this Christian pitch as well. Um, and Because private, um, private schools don't receive public money so, and don't receive federal money so that they don't have right. to go about following federal law or even state laws, right? So they don't have to integrate. There is no such thing as busing. And so you can get around it that way. And white people already have the wealth from hundreds of years of slavery, redlining, right? All of that, they already have the wealth to essentially fund their own schools, (laughs) to form their own schools and also pay taxes. That's how wealthy white people are in this society to this day. 
and we don't quite see it that way, but it is, it's important that we do. I, I'm really, I'm really glad that, that I had you on today. I'm glad you talked to me for two hours, two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> so good. Incredible speaking to you. Um, Absolutely. I, and I really thank you for, um, I, I really thank you for your time. Do you have, how many socials that you would like to plug anywhere where you can follow you? Yeah, Legacy I mean, you can follow me on Mr. Legacy Jones, MR Legacy Jones on pretty much every social media platform. For those uh, who are interested, we are, I do a lot of work with Clemency. And so if you follow me, uh, we've been doing this thing called Tubman Tuesdays, where formerly incarcerated people can help defy the stigma uh, placed against them. And so we'll have another one on Tuesday, November 9th, and we'll be having some rallies in front of the governor's mansion to try and get some clemency pardons before the next one comes in, because, you know, they finish up that down. So stay tuned to that. And um, yeah, just thanks for having me. I've been a big fan of Delegate Ibrahim Samira for quite some time. He was a member of the progressive wave that was swept in within 2019 in particular. He is a progressive. He has worked tirelessly for the people of his district. And he's also had his face spat in by the U.S. government. But he still came back to the United States in order to fight for it. He's a man that I really admire, and I'm incredibly grateful that he took time out to sit down and talk to me for well over two hours. And uh, here is about mm, an hour and a half of that conversation. I highly encourage you guys to to watch it. I think it's going to be really interesting. I'm doing well. How are you, Ibrahim? Hey, I'm all right. I'm doing great. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's kind of uh, incredible to hear you on the other end of the line. Uh, oh, really? Oh, that's pretty. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, thanks for all you're doing. You're in Richmond, right? Yes. Yes, I'm in Richmond. Oh, cool, 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 cool. So well, what got you into Virginia politics in particular? Well, I've always been interested in politics since I was a young kid. Started really like watching MSNBC and whatnot. But by the time I was like 15, I just stopped watching TV. I was more into the Chomsky, David Harvey kind of style politics. And I know, especially within the mainstream, that's not necessarily something that's allowed. So just want to put this out there. <laughs> Dr. Samira's views do not necessarily reflect mine and vice versa. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. So are you a licensed medical professional? Yeah, I just got out of my job, my work right now. Crazy, that's awesome. Yeah, well, you... that's how you stay independent and you don't get corrupted by the system, which offers you jobs, but uh, of a much worse type. So certainly yeah. there's a, you have to find a way to sustain yourself. And I think that's the, one of the biggest problems actually on the left is that not enough people that are dedicated uh, to doing the work uh, are, are financially stable. That's something that needs to be fixed internally. But nonetheless, I mean, it is, it is a systemic problem amongst organizers on the left that needs to be confronted one way or another. So here I have Delegate Ibrahim Samira, also known as Dr. Samira. He is, of course, a licensed dentist. He represented the 86th Virginia House Congressional District. How are you today, Dr. Samira? 
I'm all right. I'm doing great. I definitely want to talk to you about that primary challenge. Um, and I definitely want to talk about how much money that she spent in this election and the general election. And also I want to talk about how much money that she also, that packs for her and also she spent in the primary. Uh, that is definitely fascinating to me. But I guess the first question I want to ask is how did you begin in politics? Because I know I've watched a few of the interviews of yours. And as far as I understand, you said your dad was a professor. And so you've always sort of had uh, social justice and service sort of on your mind and around in your life. But what sort of called you to decide that you were going to actually run for the Virginia House of Delegates? Uh, I have a background of being an organizer and activist, uh, as you mentioned, by virtue of having a father who is uh, both, but also political scientist, uh, scholar in his field. Um, and having grown up with so many challenges uh, because of his involvement in uplifting the community that I came from, a Palestinian Muslim Arab community overall that uh, is in the Chicagoland area that was becoming more politically active, that was important to national politics at the time by virtue of the Speaker of the House, Henry Hyde, a Republican from uh, the Chicagoland area. That guy. Who... Uh, yes, that guy, well known for the Hyde Amendment, mm-hmm. clamping down on, on abortions, women's right to choose what to do with their body, of course, but nonetheless, a very sensitive part of the country. And my father was a great organizer and a great activist, very principled uh, person. He paid the ultimate price as an organizer by being politically targeted by the government and being forcibly removed, uh, ending his life and, and the, the life by extension of his family, me and my, my siblings uh, in the Chicagoland area, moving, having to move abroad halfway around the world and start a new life. And that was a very strong formative experience, led me down the road of activism and organizing through college at American University as part of the uh, ethno-religious groups that I come from. They're, they're student organizing bodies that are part of the collective black and brown organizing bodies on college campuses at the time but then continuing onwards into dental school, where I also continued that organizing, but uh, taken on the form of Students for Justice in Palestine, which is one of the more formidable college organizations on campuses across the country, but also one of the most targeted, if not the most targeted group. So these, these types of experiences gave me such a strong foundational experience as to how politics works, you know, how the nitty gritty of politics works. And, and furthermore, how does organizing influence mainstream politics. And uh, from there, I was, uh, of course, heavily introduced to the world of electoral organizing. And from there, I began to understand primaries and their importance. And I actually went all the way up to Michigan, Detroit Congressional District to help out now Congresswoman, then candidate Rashida Tlaib, uh, running in a seven-way primary for the seat that she now holds. And uh, seeing her win, somebody who looks like me, who, who comes from a similar background, and who has very similar ideas as to how the world uh, has been poorly shaped by government policy, and how government is to fix those issues. And from that inspiration, uh, I came back down to Virginia, to where I live in Herndon, and began to read the third layer of the political map. What's happening after something happens, after something happens. Something that was happening was at the time was uh, Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton was running for for a higher office, Congress at the time, of course, and and, uh, she went on to win. And it was well known that my state delegate was going to run for the state Senate seat that she had occupied then as a state senator running for Congress. 
that she had to relinquish after winning her election as a congresswoman. And so that meant that my state delegate seat, the seat that represents me, that is, in the House of Delegates, was to open up. And so I began to prepare, began to plan ahead. It, it, it's just hard work. Uh, the forces were against me. Nobody knew who I was. I had no name ID. Uh, when I say nobody knew who I was, I mean this institutional politics the people involved in it, whether it be on the periphery or the inside, did not know anything about me. But nonetheless, I was not discouraged, believed in the power of the youth in me, and as well as my youth friends who also cared about very similar things as I did. And so I, I rallied people from my undergrad that I went to, American University, which is not too far away from where I live in Herndon. And we were able to set up you know, a formidable run for the office, and, and I won. It wasn't, I, I felt like I was the front runner from day one, but nobody knew that. But that was all because I prepared really well. The message I think with this is, is that it's not hard to win against the establishment. It is not. It is actually, uh, <laughs> it is actually, all it requires is you to have ample amount of time to prepare to plan ahead. And if you do, then you will be able to succeed. And that's a really incredible story. You said that, so your father, you said he, he had paid the ultimate political price. And it, especially, and, and for those of you who don't know, those of you who might be listening outside of America, within America, support for Palestinian issues is often, especially within American universities, generally within American society, is seen as anathema. Uh, you can be alienated uh, politically, career-wise. It sounds a lot like your father experienced that. Can you go into some detail about, about what kind of oppression that you're in, what kind of ostracization did your father face as a result of his activism? Because you were stating that it was in and around, you said Chicago land, is that right? It's a great question. And it's so, it's so important to my own story. I don't want to take away from my own story, but, but it, is, it is a foundation. What my father did was register Muslim Americans to vote. That was it. That was his claim to fame. He had a lot of other organizing experiences for Palestine, for Arab causes of all kind, against dictatorships, you name it. I mean, he was very involved in kind of the affairs that he grew up around when he was a child, an adolescent, and a teenager, and all the way throughout college in Jordan. He was very involved in that sort of politics in the United States, because obviously the United States has a heavy hand in those affairs. But also, he understood that quintessentially all politics is local. And that he's a resident of the United States, and he has a duty to organize his, his community. And the best way to organize from his perspective was electoral organizing. And so he actually, his claim to fame was registering 50,000 plus Muslim Americans to vote. Not pushing them one way or another, not endorsing, not, not just registering them to vote. Which was back in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, it's a really big deal. Especially given that it was really hard to reach voters, to really organize them, to go to the polls, etc. And so that was his strong suit, and he was targeted by the Democratic Party machine in the Chicagoland area. And uh, can you explain uh, to me what the Chicagoland area is? Yeah, Chicago is Chicago. Obviously, we know what Chicago is. But Chicago land is basically the suburbs uh, uh, of Chicago, uh, where a lot of people that were gentrified out of Chicago went to, or the suburbs that had had existed prior to the mass gentrification of, of Chicago. Kind I of a, basically a, a few highways that crisscross horizontally and vertically. They cut through the whole area. It's, it's north, south, 
in the West. East is obviously Lake Michigan. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, it, it uh, sounds but, you know, a lot like what they did within Virginia when they ran I-95, I-64 straight through Jackson Ward. It matches myself and Pete Buttigieg do not agree on quite a few things. He was mm-hmm. making a salient point about how literally structural racism plays in destroying Black neighborhoods. And George Romney also had conversations about at the head of HUD, the white rich suburbs creating an, an affluent noose around the inner city uh, of our inner city, Black America. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry. But, but yeah, definitely go ahead. That is fascinating. I just wanted to make sure people knew where exactly what Chicago land was. With those votes was 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 really just just like any other uh, a politically active group would do is they would endorse the candidates that would support the issues of that group. And it was it was a big mix of Republicans and Democrats across the board. And he at the time, I mean, part of playing the role that he was playing was obviously to build power for for the community that he was uh, organizing, which is the Muslim American community. Uh, endorsing the Speaker of the House uh, was a really big deal. And so the ability to communicate directly to voters that he had been firing up, three, four thousand of them, uh, he was very grateful to the role that uh, Muslim Americans had played in his reelection at the time. And of course, on, on, you know, on Muslim American issues, you know, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party back then were indistinguishable. And if anything, uh, the Democratic Party was probably worse uh, than the Republican Party uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. towards Muslim Americans. Almost uh, definitely. The type of surveillance acts that were, were, that were put into place were despicable. The terrorism laws in the 90s by the Clinton administration and, and, yeah. the, and, and the House of Representatives that was controlled by, uh, by Democrats at the time as well for, for a good chunk of his presidency, Clinton's presidency. So, you know, there was, there was a lot of animosity towards the way internally domestic policy towards Muslims was, as well as external. The foundations of 9-11 had been laid out a long time ago by a lot of different discriminations. And then those discriminations were obviously propagated by terrorists and, and turned into something different. But the point is that a lot of it started with, with actually Democrats. Republicans were the party of, where are they going to support the Mujahideen? Which obviously, you know, back back then was a politically politically salient topic. But I now mean, it's, you know, the totally audacity of the different. American political establishment to talk about someone supporting right. Mujahideen, the audacity. That is incredible right. to me. Right, right. Right, right, right. And so, you know, a lot of Democrats had done a lot of bad things back then. And the Chicago political machine, this is the same machine that produced Barack Obama, that produced Rahm Emanuel, that produced the many mayors and aldermen and and congresspersons of the Democratic Party. These are all people that were staunchly supportive of Israel. You can imagine sort of the the hirings at the uh, FBI local offices in Chicago being very politically biased. Oh, and and, uh, and very obviously in line with the uh, prior administration that hired them and their values, which was, of course, the Democratic Party, the Clinton machine that produced, you know, the, 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 these hirings and, and these policies that uh, were pursued, these discriminatory policies against Muslims and surveillance for purposes of, quote unquote, uh, national security, of course, which obviously turned out to be a big, big failure. So having such an influence uh, really irked a lot of people in the Chicago area, especially people that are also within communities that were being fought for by my father, that also were tied to the Chicago Democratic Party machine, uh, Chicago Land Democratic Party machine, Cook County and beyond. There was a mix of being targeted by one's own, those that have been co-opted by uh, uh, the corruption that was that was handed out willy-nilly by by the well-known you know Chicago Democratic machine, which obviously is very corrupt. 
for folks that don't know, look up Mayor Daly Chicago, and you'll learn more about how deep the corruption is in Chicago. So my father found himself on his way back from, from visiting my sick grandmother on his first visit abroad since 1987. That was in 2001, 2002. For the first time, he's traveling outside the borders and being allowed to return as part of his application for a green card. And, uh, and uh, he was prevented from entering to the United States. Uh, that's the story. That was so foundational to, to me jumping into politics, to me being stopping to become this kid that just loved basketball and the NBA and watching, you know, uh, TV all the time to one that was very interested in justice and issues of equity and how to overcome the problems that my community and my father, by virtue of representing the community, faced uh, in, in the United States and working so hard to come back to this country that I love so much. And, uh, and that's so that's the baseline of my uh, political life. <laughs> well, that's incredible. Well, first off, I, I just point out there to everyone, especially in the aftermath of 9-11, the kind of work that the FBI, the CIA, and that the NYPD were engaged in, particularly in New York City, when it came to just randomly uh, surveilling mosques, harassing people who were Muslim, or at least even appeared to be Muslim, because especially when it comes to racism, racism doesn't actually make sense. It's just supposed to be anyone who looks or presents themselves to be sort of that generalized threat. Paying that price for political activism, being retaliated against in essence, and those are my words, not his, the kind of price that your dad paid simply for registering and organizing Muslims within that Chicagoland area, particularly now considering that within the modern day, that is a voting block that the Democratic Party has tried to zero in on and sort of corner, particularly in Barack Obama's uh, 2012 campaign and also within. And of course, Rashida Tlaib is a Democrat. She's not necessarily a traditional Democrat. However, she is a part of the Democratic Party. And it's interesting to me that particular people like Bernie Sanders, who is not a Democrat, does uh, target that particular demographic to try and garner votes. But it is kind of incredible to me that your dad would be uh, zeroed in on and denied re-entry into the United States because the attorney general deemed him a security risk. That is, that, that, I mean, that is, I mean, that is really out there. That is really outlandish. That's, that's completely ridiculous. When your dad was denied entry into the United States, you and your family went to go and live within Jordan? That's correct. That's the only place where we could all you really reunite and live together. So you were born here in the United States. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, so you were, thankfully, according to the 14th Amendment, which Donald Trump, everyone seems to forget, like in 2016, Donald Trump and the Republican Party ran on repealing the 14th Amendment. That is not an exaggeration. <laughs> like, like, no, seriously. I mean, no, seriously. Yeah. I mean, that, that is not an exaggeration. That is something that quite a few, that at the time, there were quite a few people, people like Paul Ryan, and the out there just talking about, yeah, let's just, you know, just nullify parts of the 14th Amendment. Thankfully, 14th Amendment has passed and therefore anyone born on United States soil, no ifs, ands, buts about it, is a United States citizen. How did you come back to the United States? Where did that journey begin and why American University? Well, uh, the journey began right when I was, right when I found out I would not be living in the United States for the near future. And how old because were you my, at the time? I was 12. Oh, man. Or that's, loved it. that's awful, man. Yeah, I know. And it was heartbreaking because I thought life was perfect at that point in time. I really had, I think, reached the point in time in life where I felt like my parents were comfortable financially. Right. 
uh, or I felt like I was in a groove in school. I had, we hadn't been moving much. We had been moving a lot uh, early on in my life. You know, things were settling in. I mean, we had a house in the suburbs. I mean, it, you know, it felt, it felt like it felt right. Life felt right at the point, at that point in time, right. having your first feelings as a sixth grader towards special person and, you know, having those emotions and, you know, it, it all, it all felt like, you know, that teenage, you know, the typical teenage story that things were going well. And so that all was taken away from me. And basically I had to restart. I uh, basically had to mature really quickly. I had to learn another language to be able to survive in another country, to be able to then find my way back to the U.S., and so I worked my butt off. I got really high grades. I, I stressed out about everything. I made sure I was good at everything I did. You know, typical overachieving, essentially resemblance of an immigrant, but in the body of an American born and raised uh, without those natural immigrant upbringing experiences, rather a forced one by my own government being forced to live outside of my own country and having to overcome the psychological pressure of, Am I actually, you know, welcome? Is this the right, you know, thing to do for myself to push myself to return uh, to the U.S.? And uh, so the story goes. I eventually came around to 11th grade and I said to myself, well, let me apply to universities in the U.S. Uh, if I can get a full ride, then I'll go. If I can't, then I'll just go to college in Jordan. What do you know? I got, a, I ended up with a full scholarship, not in my strengths. My strengths were in the sciences. <laughs> I ended up getting a full scholarship in a political science for a political science degree at American University in DC. Walking in dad's shoes. Exactly. And uh, I had really no other full scholarship on the table. So that was the only reason why I went to American University. But it turned out to be a great experience, one that I will never take back. (laughs) I saw a talk between Bell Hooks, who's a a Black feminist, uh, really who started Black feminism within our modern understanding of it, and Melissa Harris Perry. And they sort of have this conversation where we often talk about for brown children, they're brown and Black kids, we just don't allow them to be kids. We expect them to just sort of become walking, talking adults within sort of a, a child's body. And being a child is so important. Maintaining that sort of youthful outlook on the world, uh, possibilities and wonder and the ability to be stunned and also to learn is incredibly important that we maintain that at kids. And especially in America, it's unfortunate that we just require everyone to grow up just so quickly. But a capricious decision like that by the Attorney General is and George W. Bush is unfortunately not surprising or shocking, but it is disgusting. That's despicable that someone would do that. Especially when it comes to American University and you getting back to the United States, you know, it, it was basically chance that you were able to come back to the United States and become a, a Virginia House delegate. We wouldn't have had you around for the vote on qualified immunity. We wouldn't have had you around on the vote for the Equal Rights Amendment. Wouldn't right. have had you around for the vote on legalization, right. decriminalization, right. marijuana. I guess the universe saw fit that, no, actually, he is going to come back. So you returned to Jordan. And so are, are you a, a dual citizen? I am a dual citizen. By virtue of my parents being Jordanian citizens, they also have uh, laws similar to the U.S., which are rare in the Middle East, that allow uh, parents that are citizens to uh, pass it on to to their children that were born in the the country. So yes, a a Jordanian citizen as well. I'll be, I I only really lived there for six and a half years. They're not really only, they're good years that were, uh, that were very formative. Uh, That's why they're so important. The majority of my life has been in the United States. Whether um, 
government policies like it or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely like it or not. Um, and and that's definitely the, 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 the attitude that I take to the world, like it or not, I'm here. The, your experiences in Jordan, what was it like growing up in that country sort of being, uh, I mean, the thing is you present definitely as someone who would sort of blend in there. You, you look like someone who would, uh, forgive the phrase, belong there. But at the right. same time, you're an American citizen. You were born here, bred here. You were you, you learned the language. You speak it as though you're, you know, as anyone else does. Right. And so what kind of experiences did you have in Jordan? What was Jordan like, you know, before we get on to American University? It's a big, big mix of people in Jordan and American privilege. You know, living in Jordan was a big mix of experience. I'm extremely grateful for it because it, it, it woke me up to my own privilege as an American, even as a American that is discriminated right. against. Right. Um, right. You know, it really made me think twice about the experiences that I had with my own father, but the privilege that I had, privilege that my father had that he utilized to further protect his children, me. And it made my resolve to help those people out as I saw them, as I lived, as I lived between Jordanians, as a Jordanian, nonetheless, as an American Jordanian, those experiences made me so fired up to do something as an American. And so I was definitely bullied for being an American out there. But I was, I was bullied because people were looking at my government and thinking, why is this kid, you know, this American kid, so privileged amongst us? Because, you know, teachers even in countries that are not the U.S., you know, they, they view American kids as something special, right? Like that they have to deal with them differently and treat them differently, treat them better than they treat kids that are not Americans in their midst. And so I definitely was dealing with animosity from my, from my classmates, from, and, you know, there would be making, being, kids picking me on me for my accent or, or, or for dressing a different way or, you know, all the things that, in the U.S., I'm being discriminated against for as well. So, you know, in a way, I was experiencing the same experience, but not from the lens of privilege, but rather from a lens of underprivileged people viewing me as privileged. And so it, it, only, it only made me more thoughtful, more wiser, wanting to do things better for my communities all across and it made me more proud of all my identities. It, not just, it, it really did take me to the next level in, in terms of understanding politics. And I also was at a pinnacle point in time in Jordan as well, where uh, there was the beginnings of the Arab Spring, which uh, obviously took off only a few years after I left Jordan to go uh, to the U.S. to study. So I had the chance to experience uh, just like any other Arab youth, uh, the frustrations with uh, Arab dictatorships that are authoritarian, that are monarchies, that want to further their own closed interests above all in a very brutal way with so much less to offer for their everyday citizens. You know, th those were all such strong, strong foundational experiences uh, for the moment in America that we live today where the white supremacist, authoritarian, you know, dictatorial ways uh, uh, are coming out more and more in the, the people that, on both parties, that are letting it go 
or letting it fly or letting it just be. There's so many consequences right now that are at play right. due to the authoritarian, the very powerful ways of uh, white supremacy. You know, white supremacy is yeah. not democratic. It is, it is authoritarian. It is Precisely. dictatorial. And, you know, knowing how, how governments function off of authoritarianism and seeing our own form of government across the board, whether it be people on the left not standing up to it fully or people on the right allowing it to flourish. And, uh, and actively participating in it, like reaping right, the of benefits course. of white supremacy. Like that, what, I mean, yeah, look, I, I, I'm not going to go into the Donald Trump campaign, but I mean, I was just, I, I was just sort of thinking of this last night, which is a lot of people are talking about Representative Paul Gosar's video of him. And I, I don't know if you heard about that. There were like two blades uh, in some sort of anime video. And people are talking about, oh, sure. he deserves to be censured for that. And it's ridiculous. Like, no, he deserves to be censured for the fact he was instrumental in organizing the January 6th insurrection of the Capitol. <laughs> like, and the fact right. that everyone just sort of was just like, oh, okay, well, I, I guess we're all just going to let that go now. Yeah. And we have, I mean, we have so many inklings of uh, white supremacy, so many, so many little things that are, that are happening that will lead to bigger cascade effects. Those experiences in Jordan, even though there is no white supremacy, you know, active in Jordan, right? It, it, it's still the ty- same type. Uh, uh, of of governance that is governed on these people, and you know, if anything, it's an extension of of European colonialism in the Middle East, which obviously is a form of white supremacy. So, you know, I got to see the things that we're going through in the U.S. in different, very unique, and but also in very brutal ways that you know are very interesting to seeing seeing them play out in America. And so, I have such a strong compass when I see things playing out in the U S on a personal level towards these authoritarian ways. And it's, it's such a fundamental experience of that. I carried with me as a house delegate, trying my best to get my party uh, to wake up to the realities and how essentially authoritarians and authoritarian ways of governance rallies, voters rallies, support creates power for itself, uh, ultimately, failure and and, uh, and 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 raise all these alarms about this past election. I absolutely did, but nobody was listening. So, American University, you went there, and that's a private university. It's it's rather small, uh, as far as I can see. The enrollment right now is about eight thousand people. In comparison, VCU regularly, or at least before the pandemic, had around fifty thousand people uh, enrolled. So, so, can you go into your experience there and what that was like, uh, especially since it wasn't your strength? I know your strength of the sciences. I personally had to take the most simple math in college because I suck at <laughs> <suck in> math. <laughs> I, I can I can read, I can write, I, I I can remember things out of a book, but I mean that doesn't sure. make me talented. I I, <laughs> I I can count somewhat, but yeah, science is definitely not my strength. So so what was it like? Sure. Going into American University, essentially with you know one of your hands tied behind your back. Uh, you know, I didn't know what I was to expect out of a political science major. I took it more as a gateway to dental school, rather a, a cost-free one, given the high expenses of going to university in the U.S. Yeah, uh, that was really really important to me, especially if somebody was going to depend on themselves first and foremost to get by in life. You know, that was really important. But I came to find that. You know, the university gave me a scholarship for precisely the right reason, because I was so knowledgeable of politics <laughs> and I knew all this 
stuff that nobody else knew about the world. And I had this tremendous experience as an American citizen, having experienced discrimination, cutting off a, a forced removal because of being who I am to, to leave this country uh, and to live elsewhere. So I thought that, you know, that was a very powerful experience to have a, a political science focused university like American University in DC. I had a lot of professors that I would never, never even get coffee with outside of class, outside of anything because of how bad their resumes are in terms of abusing people's human rights and serving in very bad roles in government. And I got to see upfront a lot of the ways that our government enhances corruption and scandals and killings and torture and in such, you know, sophisticated and in nice ways. Right. And, and all of this through the lens of somebody who experienced them all as somebody living in Jordan halfway around the world where they're not American citizens. It doesn't matter who, right. the, you know, what you, what you do to them. Uh, it doesn't matter what you do to the whole region. That's just the playing field for, for the superpower of the world, the United States. Had all those experiences and then going to a university which taught the future leaders of that type of a machine in liberal ways, really awoke me to a lot of different experiences that I experience in the Democratic Party today. You know, I always say this, but the enemy within is worse than the enemy uh, is out there exposed and well known. Yeah. Because, because the enemy within is what enables the enemy without to grow yep. more and more and more. Yep. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't think, yeah, well, you know, I won't, I won't, I won't. I won't That's what I said. It. He did not say that. I, I said that. He did not say that. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, people want to label it many different ways and, and, and I'm happy to discuss them. But at the end of the day, you know, there are serious enemies at play. It, you know, it was really important to me to experience what it was like to, to fight back at them in, in an academic environment, uh, in a classroom setting. I'll be, I ended up last days uh, for speaking out too much in a political science class, which is which is within itself a <laughs> a, a conundrum of sorts, a, 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 a such a such a dichotomy there, right? You're right. there to study political science and you're doing your very at, best at a place called up, American um, University, <laughs> right, 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 right. But you end up you end up because you're an outspoken Palestinian in a classroom, you know, paying a price on in your grades, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, Nonetheless, and, and the white guys getting up there viewing this sort of nonsense, uh, and I can imagine right. quite a few people within the Washington D.C. Uh, political establishment, Republican and Democrat, get especially mm-hmm. since it's a private university, getting all sorts of like special uh, seatings on all the different boards of trustees and different professorships, and you know, and all the rest sure. of the stuff at universities. I can imagine that being the case. But of course, these guys who get up there—I mean, guys and girls, um, or anyone in between—get uh, up and say those sorts of things. <laughs> they never pay that sort of price. But it's always those who, who get up and ha- who actually have a differing opinion that somehow now they're the issue, they're dissenting. I had a similar experience where I was in a class at VCU. It, it really didn't matter much. This me and his professor, he, for some reason, he started an entire lesson, like his whole curricula. Um, it wasn't even much of a history class. It was called globalization. He started his curriculum within the within Israel, within the formation of Israel. Oh, and wow. He, yeah. I mean, he skipped from 1947 to 1967. And I was just like, <laughs> I, I was like, you're, 
you're missing something there. <laughs> you're mm. you're missing a little something there. About twenty years, you just kind of skipped over, and there's sort of there's no discussion of what was going on. At the end of the day, um, he dropped my grade by a letter because he found a way that I was absent four instead of three times. So yeah, I guess he got his revenge. But 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 point remains. No, I totally understand where you're coming from in that. Oh yeah, sort of being marginalized oh, yeah. uh, within the university system. Yeah, I learned the lesson the hard way. Be yourself not just uh it's not just a beneficial thing for yourself personally but it's also a beneficial uh thing for your side of the aisle and that's exactly what i did during college at american university i was completely myself i made so many different friends so many different i met so many different people i got myself into so many different uh activities whether it be activism or even more traditional environments especially for somebody like myself who was not really uh, didn't really have much of those foundational experiences uh, in, in high school as an American kid, going to parties and experiencing social life as a teenager, uh, I got to join uh, of all types of, of fraternities, a Jewish fraternity. And I got to debate politics day and night with a lot of people that were uh, from the other side and, and was able to convince quite a few of them right. to come on over to, to, to the good side. Of course, not very proud of being part of a fraternity as part of just the construct of one. But nonetheless, I mean, there there is extremely valuable experiences that I learned really quickly in, in four years at American University. And that, that, so that was a big part of uh, my college experience. But of course, also confronting the status quo, right? That was a big, big, big part of my experience. I uh, led many protests. We protested the ambassador of, of Israel to the United States when they came to my campus. Uh, we we protested the Westboro Ch- Baptist Church when they came to my campus. Uh, oh, I love those guys. Pro- Are you kidding me? Yeah. I love those yeah. guys. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, where would you be without them? Well, I got that experience. I even got, I mean, we had such such foundational experiences. Like Aung San Suu Kyi, um, she had just gotten freed from prison. She, I don't think she had won her Nobel Peace Prize yet, but we protested her because she didn't stand up for the rights of minorities right. and she was willing to work with the regime right. in Myanmar to, to put down yeah. uh, the interests of, the, of her own people, just so that she can eventually rise the, rise the, uh, the levels of government. And of course, eventually she became prime minister. The uh, point is, is that she's been corrupted and it's now it's well, well known and it's out in the open. Right. Right. And so, you know, all of this while the Arab Spring was happening and that I was in a school that was uh, a top-notch school for international affairs. So really, you know, pinning the needle on on colonialism in the Middle East for for causing uh, such a uh, such a powerful uh, response from from youth in the Middle East uh, uh, to their governments uh, and and their interests uh, that they subsume with with uh, with their positions of power with with modern day colonialism. So uh, you know, having those experiences during college, I mean, I, I could go on. I mean, there's so much. There's so much that I was able to gain, uh, uh, and I, I look back very fondly at it. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing I learned in life is um, as uh, a young Black gay communist was was just sort of like, <laughs> you you are going to have to be who you are. There really isn't a way to sort of stop that, and you're just going to have to let it take you on the way that you're going to go. And I mean, to try and concede or conciliate on really any part, not just to sort of your identity, but just sort of the way that you think about the world and the way that you advance forward in the world, that is not going to get you, it, it, it's not going to lead you to any sort of happy life. You, you might end up like one of the living dead, uh, you know, like one of those people who is in Washington, D.C. running around, one of the Congress critters. <laughs> it, it's very interesting that you that you mentioned um, 
you know, American University and it being a private university and you having sort of those formative experiences there. You had mentioned, uh, and you had mentioned, uh, you know, it, 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 the decisions of the Virginia Democratic Party coming back to bite them in the ass. The point about Virginia elections and the defeat of per- progressives like you and Lee Carter in these, uh-huh. in these primaries, because there was a significant concerted effort by the Virginia Democratic Party to push out progressives that had accomplished so much within the Virginia state legislature in just the last really two years outside of straight down the toilet. (laughs) What was your analysis of what went on in your primary, um, you know, earlier this year? Yeah. um, Gosh. I mean, so first off, um, you know, this is a machine that knows how to run primaries. They know how to run a primary election. So that's number one, that, something that's something that i estimated but slightly underestimated the degree to which they would focus their energy on on primaries you know i just didn't think that if you are cognizant of yourself as a leader of a party that you would busy yourself so much with the infighting right I get that there's competing forces within the Democratic Party's makeup as a power body, but I don't think, I never thought that leadership would spend significant amount of time behind closed doors dedicating themselves to the work of eliminating some of their own. Yeah. You know, you fight your fight internally, you win or you lose. At the end of the day, there's a team you come back to, politically speaking, that is an alliance that carries you to the majority, right? That's, that's, that's how you look at it if you are a wise, smart, politically astute leader of a diverse, many a times dysfunctional party. But nonetheless, that is how you win. That is how you govern. That is how you continue to maintain a majority. I underestimated that. And the reasons why I I found out that I underestimated that was because of the way the whole setup was played out. I essentially was put in a position. I think the party thought that I had a weakness, which is that I didn't know how to fundraise. Which turned out to be not true. I was able to fundraise $190,000 in two and a half months. So that was something that shocked them. Their whole plan plan was to ship in uh, a candidate from out of state, from California in particular, all the way across the country, somebody who campaigned for them before, something that they know that can fundraise. That was their biggest skill set to be, that they could go in and fundraise on their own and that they would pave the way for them to become an elected official. You know, they tried to spin it all sorts of ways. Of course, they played the demographic card as much as they could. Uh, primary, Democratic primary electorate base is, has to be 60-40 women, or maybe 55-45 at minimum women. It tends, you want somebody who can fit the profile of a minority, but in particular, a model minority. You know, you, they needed somebody who played to the predominantly white Democrat, demographics of the primary electorate, 
they absolutely were in backdoor conversations with Republicans for them to not have a primary on the Republican side so that Republicans would vote in a Democratic primary as part of an open primary format. They played, of course, the the factor of time extremely well as well. They had planned this person out for at least since the time they moved into the district, which was as publicly noted on the voting records, uh, I believe uh, late October of 2020. And furthermore, the announcement of the candidacy to run against me was in the middle of session when fundraising uh, was practically impossible, uh, whether it be for legal reasons or for practical reasons uh, of, of, of uh, needing to legislate and focus on the work of being uh, an elected official in government uh, as, as a legislator in the middle of regular session at that point in time. And furthermore, it, the announcement coming, I believe, the, the first day of February or the first days of February, leaving only four months to prepare for an election. Right. So, you know, that, that setup uh, looked like it would sink me badly in the beginning. But even though I was paying attention to the possibility and I was actually fundraising prior to that starting, it still caught me off guard. And I still, uh, I had to fight like hell to make sure to win. Of course, I was on paper the favorite, but practically I wasn't on paper uh, the favorite, given the circumstances that, were, 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 that I was put under. Uh, practically, my opposition was actually uh, uh, the favorite. Those four months that came afterwards were hard work. As I mentioned, the fundraising power of, of being able to fundraise close to $200,000 in, in just about two months. That is extremely significant. Uh, uh, and I didn't take money for corporations, of course. I worked hard for all of it. That put my opposition in a very different spot. And uh, mind you, I don't mention the candidate that I ran against. I, mention, I say the opposition because I wasn't running against a candidate. Right. And that's the, and that was exactly the point that I was driving towards. But I'm going to let you that, that was not I was not running against a candidate. I was running against a political machine that is, was unwilling until this very day is unwilling and furthermore is willing and has and will combat intersectional justice oriented candidates. And when I say intersectional justice oriented candidates, I mean anybody that believes in justice for all without any exception. Not to Palestinians, not to queer people, not to uh, 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 brown people of all kinds, Latino, black, immigrant. We're including everybody. That is not what the Democratic Party is used to doing, especially in Virginia. Yep. And, 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 so, and so this was the machine that I was bumping against, one that requires economic disenfranchisement of those on the margins. And I was unwilling to participate in the political symbolisms of standing by disenfranchised people that they had espoused. I wanted to stand only in economic solidarity with people that are disenfranchised in Virginia, including my own, of course. And standing up for myself as a person who is particularly of an identity that 
is going through probably the only modern day colonization in its physical form right in the world as a palestinian so you know these these were this was what i was up against as soon as i i showed them that there is power to the work that i do in fundraising which is their only focus that's their only gamble is that oh if i have the most money i'll win yeah they then began sending out their dark money packs of course, in between all of that, I was knocking on doors. I was doing my thing. I was expanding uh, uh, the reach. I was, I was, I was, I was uh, focusing on the messaging. I was doing it in a very positive and uplifting manner. I was not attacking my opposition for many reasons. I mean, in the case of the person that you ran against, she, I believe she outspent her Republican opponent. It was an incredible amount of money that she, that she plowed into this race in terms of just the general election, excuse me, I mean, in the general election within Virginia, but in terms of just the statewide election this past week or so is, it's really incredible the amount of money that was spent against her. And, and you know, they, I hear these same stories, particularly out of like something like 2016, the, everyone knows the, the Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton, that sort of run where this guy was maligned. He was pushed out of the media. He was called all sorts of names. You know, he's a sexist, he's a racist. He's, you know, all, all the rest of this stuff. He essentially tied Hillary Clinton in Iowa. I mean, 49.5 <laughs> to 49.3. And it was like out of the gate, like, well, well, wait a second, you know, that he might actually have some sort of actual chance at beating her. And it, it got incredibly close. But and the reason why I bring that up is that there is this very interesting alliance between the people within media, the people within power within the media, those who control media, the producers, the people who own media companies, and also the people who own the Democratic Party, because not many people understand this is that within Virginia and with the United States, the Democratic Party is literally a corporation. Like the, the Democratic right. National Committee is literally a corporation. And I mean, you can go and you can look at something like the Mickey Const uh, conversation <laughs> when it comes to 2016 DNC and actually getting into what it was that really cost us the election versus Donald Trump. And it's really about this sort of idea that there is virtually no transparency when it comes to the Democratic Party's machinations in terms of the budget. And so when you mentioned to me that you were facing the Virginia Democratic Party machine, that is exactly the reason why I wanted to have you on, just because people like you, people like Lee Carter, accomplished incredible things inside of the state of Virginia for all kinds of reasons. And I really wanted to get into some of the accomplishments that you all were able to do, particularly from 2019 to 2021. I was talking to Alan Chipman and we were discussing, you know, Ralph Northam ran as a sort of working class Democrat, sort of, kind of, but he was sort of conservative and he's, he's Southern, obviously, but, you know, (laughs) given that college yearbook photo that we all found of him, he may or may not have been in blackface. He may or may not have been inside of a Klan outfit. You know, those are still allegations. We've yet to prove that. He sort of owed us as sure. the progressives and the Black uh, population within the state. He owed us. And so he needed to make concessions to this base. So if you could, can you go into some of he the... He did. Yeah, yeah. And he did. And that's exactly... Many, that's exactly, many. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you could, yeah, please go into the things that you accomplished yeah. and the kind of concessions you all were able to achieve from the from the Northam administration, particularly after that yeah. glorious photo came out of him. Look, uh, all of yeah, his honesty. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, you know, I'll start backwards. 
this is not genius stuff in the world of 2021 Democratic Party politics now. That does not want us to be a part of the Democratic Party. We've, we now acknowledge that openly. And we know this as a fact of matter. When people ask, oh, why can't uh, Democrats get along from the outside? Well, from the inside, we know why Democrats can't get along. There's a fundamental mm-hmm. disagreement mm-hmm. as to what it is that we are going to do with the Democratic Party. And what has happened in the election last Tuesday is a representation of what happens when we go down the route of making the Democratic Party a corporate machine rather than a machine that is for the people. While I don't expect drastic changes in the Democratic Party, there was some sort of (laughs) symbiotic relationship between 2019 and 2021 in the Democratic Party of Virginia where progressives were able to be part of a majority, people on the left were able to be part of a majority of governance, and corporate Democrats were able to be also part of that same majority and also govern and get their interests in play. And somehow we all kept it together during those years of governing when we were in legislative mode, when we were actually delivering results, when we were passing bills and sending them to the governor's desk. But because the path the Democratic Party took was a path of going towards the enthusiasm of their base, the enthusiasm of their base being the left pole of the Democratic Party, not the center. They ultimately paid the price. They lost their message. They, nobody was there to say their message because the people that were supposed to say their message didn't want to irk their corporate donors the wrong way. They didn't want, they didn't want to piss them off yep. in, a, in a way that would hinder their ability to fundraise because that, their firm belief is that fundraising is the ultimate goal of being in power and they paid the price for that but moving moving backwards you know they had so many accomplishments on the table that and this is conversations that happened in the waning days of of this unity that we had where progressives and lefties and whatever you want to call it were still part of the party in a way that was that still held power i.e before we knew that as, as part of this majority, in the waning hours of this majority having unity between progressives and corporate Dems, during, during the last hours of us all being in a room together as under the label of Democrat, both people on the left of the party, progressives, uh, and, and the centrists, uh, slash, uh, I should just call them corporate Dems, we heard the polling. The polling was saying that the deliverables uh, of people on the left of the, of the party, uh, like the $50 insulin cap, uh, cap bill that uh, Lee Carter introduced uh, with primary support from people on the left of the party, like myself, whether it be talking about making health care guaranteed as a human right, whether it be fighting for housing for all, all mainstays of the left, of the party, that those were the primary, most fascinating, most interesting, most most energetic and rallying things, messages that the Democratic Party could run on and win all across. And they pulled all the graphics. They basically would switch up those deliverables and those issues around in different orders. People wanted to get out of this pandemic. And 
focusing on the issues of those on the margins, on the, uh, those people that were discriminated against the most throughout American history, but also to this very day, brown and black people was a very powerful tool to d- deliver that message. Focusing on quote unquote, the little guy yeah. was the best way to deliver that message. Yeah. And the party refused. Why? Part of it was because, oh, well, these were not our bills. These are not our ideas. That is the, 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 the majority uh, uh, leadership, the Democratic Party's leadership. They did not see those ideas as their own. They did not want to give any credit to the left of their party whatsoever for any future victories that were not attained yet. They were willing to sacrifice a future win just so that the left pole of the party does not get any credit for it. Yep. It was a huge gamble that they were taking. But yeah. at, at, the, at that point in time, when we were all reading the wall, writing on the wall and seeing how the primaries are playing out and seeing how the leadership of the elite part of our party, this corporate establishment, was operating, we were not as interested in fixing their message and empowering it and trying to make it better. Right. We were busy trying to survive. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And, and so, and who was it that was focusing all their energy on making survival the main issue for us? It was the same people that led us to loss, to major loss last Tuesday in the statewide elections, as well as the House of Delegates elections. Yeah. We had so many things that we did as the left poll. There might, our names might have not been on it, but there are so many barrels that you could make a story, paint a picture of a struggling person in a Virginia that was helped because we centered their story. Because every single move that we made, whether it be on the floor or in private meetings and caucus, we were centering those particular human beings. And by the end of it all, the polling showed that those were our strongest pieces of messages to Virginians about what we delivered. And if it weren't for these internal battling uh, uh, moments for us with corporate leadership of the party, uh, the margin of loss would be greater than it was today. Most definitely. Most definitely. They have no idea how they still were able to turn out black and brown people to vote for them in similar percentages that they did in earlier and prior elections. Again, the right. reason why the reason why Tuesday failed was because there was a lack of enthusiasm. It wasn't because black and brown people didn't turn out. We gave them enough reasons to turn out on a local level. We gave, I mean, there was a lot of good reasons to turn out to vote. Mind you, they weren't the best reasons. They weren't the reasons that were the strongest that could have been created between the years of 2019 and 2021, they weren't, but they were still good enough reasons to show up and vote for Democrats. The messengers were all gone at that point. The people that actually can talk about what had happened internally that led to this point were all gone. The people that would have dared to speak the language that raises the ear of corporations were gone. And while people, everyday Virginians, might not 100% understand that corporations are behind a lot of their pains and sufferings, we, as people on the inside, knew how to translate that language into layman terms 
into words that would make sense to average Virginians. Because we were, we were average, we are people that represent those average Virginians and their struggles and their wants and desires. Having our own lived experiences of struggle to just be alive and do well for ourselves, for our family. Whereas a lot of our colleagues were wealthy, political dynasty-like yeah. individuals who've been around in the Democratic Party machine forever, who've been elected officials forever, who are out of touch with the people of Virginia, who do not understand what the people of Virginia are going through. So when you lose your messenger, you lose your enthusiasm, and every pollster will tell you that enthusiasm is the greatest indicator of success or defeat in a given election. And we did not have enthusiasm on our side. Not at all. Furthermore, furthermore, you had a bunch of, uh, 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 generally speaking, disciplined people on the left of the party who were willing to stand by the Democratic Party machine in the general election, just for the sake of getting another two years of potentially similar results as was before, even though they were not in leadership, even though they were not held in positions of power, even though they were not selfish, like the corporate Dems that lead the party of Virginia, the Democratic Party of Virginia today. So, we, you know, you had so much and you're willing to throw it all away just so that you can end up with a party that wins an election without any credit given to the left of its party. That was the only thing on their mind yep. the whole entire way is how can we win without the help of these people on the left, without wanting it, without asking for it, just by letting them come on their own, without seeking their support, without thinking of them as partners in this process, with allowing themselves to forget their experiences at knocking on doors and hearing everyday Virginians desire the same things that these people on the left of their party desire that they are fighting for, but rather listening to pundits that are controlled by corporate media, that are paid for, that are hired to say things that corporations love to hear, that benefit their interests in the political environment, which is appealing to this imaginary version of fake moderation that voter voters supposedly have when they go to the polls. That those people are the ones that are the ones that are gonna tilt the, the scales in favor of one party or another. And they fell into their own trap. They gambled on money that, that came with the messaging, a very poor messaging, yep. that disregarded all the successes. You know, the successes that we can go for talking about are so many, but I think the biggest success that the Democratic Party of Virginia gained from having people on the left of their party can be demonstrated in the results of the 2020 election. Whether or not the party would like to acknowledge, but the left, whether it be across the country or in Virginia, which is all interconnected, did a great deal of effort to highlight why it is that Republicans are terrible for government. And furthermore, what it is that Democrats could do with government in their hands. And in particular for Virginia, we were able to message that at the state level. Albeit there was a lot of contradictory messaging because the left pole of the party was saying things that the establishment leadership 
the corporate Dems leadership didn't want to ever do. But they never were able to oppose it because at the end of the day, it was what their base needed to hear. Again, in politics, the greatest political asset that you have is your ability to communicate with the people that make the decision in elections, the voters. 70%, this is said widely in political circles of elected officials, 70% of the job is communication. It's not passing, it's not just passing bills, which we did plenty of at the state level. Sure did. At the state level, at the state level, we delivered a lot of progressive bills across the board. Sure did. And we compromised too. They say that we don't know how to compromise. We don't know how to negotiate. We did. We compromised. On the environment, we accepted less than what the science said, just to be able to move the ball forward. Some of us helped firm and said, no, we're not going to at different times during the process of passing, for example, the Virginia Clean Economy Act. That bill, believe it or not, would have been killed by progressives if progressives had not, people on the left of the poll did not say, we're going to come to an agreement. Because initially it was tanking. The bill was going to die. There were seven Democrats or seven uh, uh, members of the Democratic caucus. And which bill is this? Pro- which bill this is, is the Virginia, This is the Virginia Clean Economy Act. Okay, yeah. This is the bill that ended up, that's, that's going to end up costing Virginians an average of $200 each year right. on their electric bill so that we can get to a place where our, our carbon emissions are neutral on the scales. I was at 2040, which of course is late, but nonetheless, to get a, a government that was beholden by Dominion Energy forever to completely switch course on fossil fuels, the main derivative of, of profit for this company, it was, was, was astounding. It was, if it weren't for those seven members, well, some of them, I should say, switching their votes over to yay. I voted no, and then I voted yay just because I wanted to make sure we moved the ball forward on this issue. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, given how the Democratic Party leadership was operating the majority. Ambition was, was basically cut short. We passed that bill on criminal justice reform. We passed so many justice reform bills, insane amounts, legalizing marijuana. That wasn't even on the platform for all the people that ran in 2019 as Democrats. It was only on the platform of me and people like Lee Carter in the party. That was it. Yep. Nobody ran on legalizing marijuana as a justice issue Yep. on the economy to make sure that we get uh, collective bargaining for the public sector. Yep. That would not have happened if there wasn't a union supporting left poll to the Democratic Party. Right. Which, might I just add, Ralph Northam delayed that during COVID so that teachers and other public, mainly teachers, couldn't actually pull him to the left to actually go about giving them ARPA funds and bailout funds from the Democratic Party. Yep, you're completely right. But yes, go ahead. 100%. And I voted against that delay as well. Also sending a powerful message. One of the few that voted against it as a Democrat. Taking these strong positions on issues like the $15 minimum wage, which also is delayed, but nonetheless would have never passed if you didn't have a left pole to your party. Every single one of these issues were issues that the corporate establishment Democrats ran on, and they would have never landed without support. And furthermore, without setting the table for negotiations with corporations indirectly to be people on the left of the party are, are not going to accept the crumbs. And so instead of crumbs, we ended up with a half of a meal in these, all of these bills. Again, no credit given to the left of the party, no vision, no understanding, no acknowledgement of the fact that 
people on the left of the party in government, in, the, in positions of power, know how to navigate negotiations to the benefit of the party as a whole, to the benefit of their constituents, to, benef to the benefit, of course, of Virginians. They're willing to constantly start the negotiation at, oh, a lot of crumbs or a few crumbs. That's basically where the corporations take them to every single time. No, no, you only get a few crumbs. Okay, we'll take that. We put them into a position where they were the people that were saying to the corporations, hey, we're just trying to get little crumbs here and there. That's it. These people on the left side of our party are not willing to vote for a few crumbs. They want, they want half of the meal. They want a half plate full. They don't want the crumbs. Can you help us? We can get those votes that we can pass it. So ultimately, U.S. can benefit as well. Because at the end of the day, the VCEA benefited many corporations and as well as Dominion Energy and their ability to build renewable energy, to make jobs, to make money, a profit, a buck at the end of the day by selling this energy that's being produced that is renewable. And they wanted that buck. They're not willing to give up that buck. And the left pole of the party understood that. And they were willing to use that chip against corporations. But the poor negotiators, the corporate leadership of the party, refused to use that as a strong piece in their negotiations. And so we ended up with less. But nonetheless, we still ended up with moving the buck forward more than had been anticipated prior to having progressives and, and people on the left of your party in positions of power like our own as delegates in the house i'm just giving a few examples but i could go on and on about the type of powerful negotiation setting that we did for our ability to be able to produce results that we could eventually message in the election that happened last tuesday that was a long way of, of telling you about the about the impact and the results and the things that we did on a grand scale i can go into bills on a micro scale I don't think that uh, they're as noteworthy as being able to pull the party to pass a minimum wage at $15 or pass an, a bill that advances us closer to carbon neutral, neutrality to save the planet uh, or, or on uh, union rights or on criminal justice reform, setting the bar really high on, on marijuana legalization and its, and its justice issues, the expungement of all records exactly. of anybody that has any marijuana uh, 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 discharge under on their on their on their on their legal record. Yeah, you know, we, this is all very strong positions that people on the left of the party held strong and allowed entities like the Black Caucus and corporate Democratic leadership, broadly speaking, which of course includes the leadership of the Black Caucus, in strong negotiations to be able to actually deliver results that they can campaign on. The party does not have that right now. It did not have that during the campaigning season. It bit too much of the corporate apple and thought that they can get away with it. And yes, for everyone at home, the left is mad. Yes, we are furious. We are absolutely, yeah. I mean, you look, it, would that be an accurate description um, at the, <laughs> I mean, no, but seriously. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're fucking pissed. <laughs> and and you yeah, look, you look. This wasn't our, no, it wasn't our fucking fault. That's what it was. Yeah, exactly. And we were not part of this, this shit reality. Exactly. That <laughs> Democratic Party leadership in Virginia put us up yeah. to deal with. Exactly. We fought hard for unity. We fought hard to bring us all together to pass really good bills that all of our pollsters, all the people that they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for to find, to do focus groups and polling 
to say the same exact thing that we provided them for zero dollars and zero cents just by being living beings amongst everyday Virginians and knowing the issues that they face and being cognizant and smart and sophisticated in our dealings with these issues in the matters of governance and legislation. We did everything we could to get these people to stop thinking with their heads in the sand. And every single time they decided, no, we're going to put our heads in the sands. We're not going to listen to you. We're not going to take our party too far. This was the most common phrase we heard in 2019. Let's not take the party. Let's not take this majority too, too far left. Let's not. Oh, yeah. Good job. Fantastic. Fantastic job, everyone. There, Absolutely there great. No, yep. no inspiration whatsoever going down that track. We went down that track. We fought hard. We ended up passing a really good bills. And because the messengers got killed, because the machine did not want to campaign with people that put up that message because they did not want to allow any credit to be given to these people. Yeah, you lose by a few thousand votes. You yeah. lose by 2, 2%, 2.5%, whatever the margin was statewide. Yeah, you end up losing your majority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of you now are in the minority, every <laughs> single one of you. <laughs> yep. All of you are in the minority. Yep. And, and some of you are out of power, unfortunately. Some good friends of ours are out of power. Democrats gambled and we lost. And not, I mean, Democrats gamble, Virginians lost. And so it's, 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 it's really incredible to me that, yeah, I mean, for those of you unfamiliar, this Ibrahim Samira's story and his primary is not happening in a vacuum. I mean, Herndon, Virginia is very close to, is very close to that sort of Democratic power seat within Northern Virginia that they always count on for hundreds of thousands of votes, but also a good deal of where a lot of the money and a lot of the brain trust is within the Virginia Democratic Party. And so they decided early on when Terry McAuliffe began running, he just sort of had this idea. And it's what Alan Chipman was saying, which is this idea of Hillary Clinton, which is it's my turn. Like, I, I don't have to run to prove a point. I'm not running on issues. I'm not running to change anything. I'm not running because I have a purpose. I am running because it's my turn again. Because essentially, I mean, and as I said, these are not these are not Delegate Samira's words, but essentially, like, this is my party. Like, this is my state, and I deserve to come back. And so this guy is on stage dancing and prancing around with Jill Biden a month ago. And meanwhile, you have pipeline protesters, majority of them white, being essentially uh, corralled by Henrico County police. I mean, and it's, it, it, is, it is incredible to me. It, it was so indicative at the time of what was going wrong within the Virginia gubernatorial race and what was going wrong in the Virginia Democratic Party. Because the kind of concessions that you all were able to get from Ralph Northam, especially considering what he owed the Black base that got him elected, what he owed the Democratic Party base, given what was revealed about him. The kind of concessions when, I mean, Ralph Northam ran on decriminalizing marijuana. He didn't even accomplish that until 2019. And then on top of that, he did not run on things like uh, marijuana legalization, which in the South is incredible. That is incredible to me that you that, that we actually got that through. And so and, and a lot of people are like, you know, haha, he, he, you know, we, you know, it's funny. It's funny. You know, it's not really because around the country, as I discussed with Chelsea Higgs Wise, there is there are no resentencing laws. No one is being let out. Right. No one is being let out. Meanwhile, the people who were around and benefited from the war on drugs are now allowed to be around and and essentially publicly trade stocks in marijuana, which is I mean, it's just it's mind bending. 
It really is incredible. And so I, I absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's mind bending that none of that was. I mean, and, and it's it's very inspiring to to hear her kind of work because she is really trying to. She was really trying to push. Is really trying to push a first in the nation kind of policy, whereby you know Ralph Northam, his justification for legalizing marijuana, he gave not only after that years long study that he kept he kept postponing. But that year sort of medical study that on top of that, that the kind of money that it was going to produce, the majority of it was going to go to pre-K, right? I mean, Demo- I mean, Democrats always ran on pre-K. I mean, everybody was talking about child care. Everybody was talking about pre-K. <laughs> Hillary Clinton ran on pre-K, ran on child care. That's what they all did. It was what Joe Biden ran on. It's what's and the, basically it's the only thing that's left in the Build Back Better Act is 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 child care. I mean, it, it, I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It's basically it. Um, that's basically it. That's basically it. And so it's 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 really it is stunning to me that this occurred and we sort of watched it all occur real time and we all knew I mean I I was hopeful given the polls within the state and given the demographics of the state I was thinking okay maybe he will get out the vote at the same rate that other that, that we have in the past maybe that will happen and unfortunately I was wrong because of exactly what Alan Shipman stated, which is that they divided the Richmond activist base, which not only gets out the vote in Richmond, but throughout the state. And right. so he, you, you abandon and marginalize them. And on top of that, Terry McCullough's campaign then goes about blacklisting um, everyone who essentially worked for anyone else's campaign. He bulldozes Jennifer Carroll Foy mm-hmm. and, you know, just simply with an incredible amount of money. And he basically took the Democratic primary. He essentially bought it. And so, you know, we get into, so, so we sort of get to this point now where there are no real progressives left within the party. I mean, people like Jennifer McClellan, God bless her, does her best, right? And she can be pushed in order to pass certain policy as Northam was. I mean, for different reasons, but as Northam was. But not embracing your base, spitting in the face of activists and organizers and of the left is what cost them this election. And, you know, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to be said about a lot of people that you mentioned, you know, they are at the end of the day in line with the corporate establishment. Exactly. Yes, they do espouse uh, a lot of uh, progressive uh, policies. Right. They are socially progressive policies. There is no economic progressive policies that they espouse. One of the people that you mentioned uh, literally received $150,000 from Michael Bloomberg in their campaign. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and this yep. is for for this is for a delegate race. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, this is you know the whole party, the way it's set up is the fundamental problem, right? The this, the party is set up for failure on purpose, because we're the party of morality and standing up to stand up for the little guy and standing up for the little guy and morality. Those are very difficult things to do in the face of corporate machines yeah. that can donate endlessly in Virginia that can put any amount they want against or for an individual. So the way the Democratic Party has gone about governing in the few years that it has had, those two years, was a recipe for disaster and a recipe for repeat disaster if they decide, if they decide to go off again. Because every single time, they're going to find that the enthusiasm gap is very high. And every single time, they're going to lose. Because you can't keep running on, oh, I want to legalize... Uh, abortions up up until the second uh, trimester ends exactly I mean, how you many can only do that have that for so long guys? you can only do that for so long you're going to get caught into a bind you're going to lose elections as a result of this and so 
you know, you, you want to make sure to have a broad appealing message, one that can, can appeal to white and black poor people. And you can do that. That is not extremely difficult. It is doable. Um, you have to care. Uh, it, but but you have to be willing to do it. You just have to be willing to do it. If you're not willing to do it, you're not going to be able to win. And we see the catering of Republicans to their far right supremacists all the time, Yep. all the time. And we never see the Democratic Party do the same for its own base. So of course, you're going to end up with only two years of majority, (laughs) (laughs) only two years of a majority out of 22 years. Out of 22 whole years right. of being in office, there's things that, you know, they need to be looking really hard in the mirror at, try to figure out uh, what they want to do next. It, it was incredible to me because there were DNC members after the fact who were coming out saying, you know, in these pieces saying, oh, you know, this is the worst, you know, this is the worst campaign I've ever been a part of and all the rest of the stuff. Meanwhile, during the campaign, there was no conversation whatsoever about how badly things were going about how there was effectively no ground campaign. And it was all, I mean, basically out, it was $50 million that they basically set on fire with, you know, the Muppets coming out saying you're an asshole if you don't vote, which is just like, oh my God, guys. Oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) What are you doing? Like you're not giving anybody anything to vote for. That's the reason why no one is coming out. I was interested. Did you hear any policies that, that, that he had at all? Like I, I never heard a policy that he was in favor of outside of putting cops back in school. I mean, just as, as far as a consistent message that he talked about, no. And and of course, that's all part of a calculation. Yeah. You know, you know, it, it, the analysis of people on the left about how corporations function—that they're top-down, that they're authoritarian. It's either their way or else they'll take it and take it to you and punish you for it. You know, all the different ways that white supremacy can infiltrate the way things are done to their to its benefit. You know, there that is a correct analysis because somebody running for office as a Democrat on the top of the ticket, when they're confronted with the reality that if they talk about a certain policy that people love, they might end up losing an election. Right. Because corporate powers that be will support the other candidate with huge sums of money. That is the type of situation that the top of the ticket found itself in. They could not, they really could not push their message forward. The message that the pollsters were telling them that they should push to win an election based on helping everyday people in Virginia. They got stuck. So they had on their platform, on their website, things that people would love to hear about. But then the candidates didn't talk about any of them. And the reason is because they know that's just fluff. That's not meant for deliverable. They're not trying to actually deliver on that particular issue that they're standing up for. On healthcare, for example, my signature bill to allow people to buy Medicaid was not something that passed in the General Assembly. McCullough had it on the platform that he would make that a reality, that he would allow people to buy Medicaid. What does it mean to buy Medicaid? Obviously, you're buying it at Medicaid rates, and Medicaid rates are actually extremely unmanageable. People can get insurance. If you can buy Medicaid at the rate that it is being essentially divvied out by the state government. And so you end up in a situation where you can't even talk about your own policies because you're bought and sold by corporations. You know, what do you, what do, you do in that, in that situation? What, what do you even do about the reality that you're in? 
fundamentally speaking, the way the party is set up will not allow it to win majorities for 20 years like Republicans have in Virginia. It's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how to win power in the world of 2021, where information is widely shared and available to the public and people have senses. that people feel when they are struggling and they know to put the blame on the powers that be in charge for their pains and sufferings. Yeah, and the thing is, I, I was absolutely convinced that had Ralph Northam run, of course, I mean, the Virginia Constitution bans uh, governors running for, you know, two consecutive terms, which is the reason why Terry McCullough is back. Lord have mercy. But I was convinced that Ralph Northam run, we probably would have won the race because Ralph Northam mm-hmm. would focus on policy. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. not Clinton-esque. He's not like Clinton. And really, Terry McCullough comes right out of Clinton's world. And he was a major player in Virginia when it came to trying to deliver Virginia for the Clinton, for you know Hillary Clinton. And this sort of blackballing of activists, blackballing organizers, blackballing campaign staff from people like Jennifer McClellan's campaign, for people like Jennifer Carroll Foy's campaign, not to mention the way the Democratic Party establishment treated people like Princess Blanding, which we're going to get to in a second. Mm-hmm. Is really it is so indicative as to why we lost this race because as I said you cannot continue to spit in the face of your organizers and of the left and people who get out the vote and your base and expect to win elections it's just not going to happen. I mean the idea that you couldn't get sixty thousand votes or sixty five who even cares if it was close right who even cares if it was close so long as you get the governor's mansion right. Just keep it. I mean, I, I said to myself, I would much rather have a Republican uh, legislature with a Democratic governor, in, at least in this state, than I would have a Democratic legislature and a Republican governor. Because the Republicans are going to turn around and blame us. But at the same time, if there, if there was a Democratic governor, we could simply just stop anything that they wanted to put through. Because in Virginia, basically, the veto is what stops everything. And you need a right. huge override. And so and if you had the governor that was willing to dare them to, to actually abdicate their, their constitutional responsibility to go about passing a budget for the state of Virginia, then, you know, then maybe they could do that. But really where I'm getting at this with is that sort of attitude that was – and that sort of infrastructure that was deployed against people like you, against people like uh, Carter, the princess blending of the world, people who are – part of the black community within Virginia, but also the black youth activist community within Richmond, that blackballing of her and the fact that she has to literally speak out in the middle of the debate between Youngkin and McCullough is so indicative of what the problem was in this election. And no, I, I didn't comment much on Princess Blanding's run for governor because I really wanted to see what she could do and also because it was important that the activist base was in Richmond and with, throughout the state was made very prominent and very clear in the fact that they were not going to be forgotten and that they felt alienated from this party. And the Democratic Party, particularly embodied in Karen McCullough and Ralph Northam, just didn't care or just didn't understand. It's really incredible to me to see that sort of alienation of the Democratic primary space. Princess Landing's run for governor. Can you sort of give your take on that, given the kind of machine that you face, Lee Carter face, other progressives face within the state, and also in in the light that we lost, the way that we lost? Well, first of all, huge respect goes out to Princess Landing for going forward with running for a seat that people put her off uh, uh, wrote her off for 
right away without even giving her a chance. And she knew that before she even decided to run, that that would be the case. So that's it's major courage, um, especially in a, in, a, in a democracy which has a lot of problems right now, being able to, to function with, with its setup of a two-party system. The machine that she was running against precisely viewed her as a threat to the two-party system. And there's a reason why she wasn't given a, a position on the debate stage. And it was precisely because she was a threat to the two-party system. Greater than a threat to a Democrat winning is her, is her threat to the Virginia way. The Virginia way is one where both people that are running for Democratic Party leadership, for a Democratic for any uh, leadership position statewide or, or in Virginia government, it's a way of acting along the way of getting to that position of power that is dictated by capitalism, by those that control the means of money moving around, people that have such huge control over the financial well-being of everyday people. And you end up in a situation where if somebody comes in and wants to disrupt this way of doing business for these corporations, for these elites in government, then they are going to be cut out, destroyed as much as possible, taken out of the picture, not given a chance to even voice themselves. Um, I'll give you a, an example. It's a complete contrary, but at the national level, we have somebody that ran for office for the highest office of the land, the, the office of, of the presidency, whose whole message was, hey, I'll be a, just like Obama, a different kind, and I'll be super friendly to corporations. He was seen as a threat to the favorite uh, for the nomination, the person who has the longest list of credentials uh, 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 in service of our system of governance, the way it is right now, where it doesn't serve the interests of the people. And uh, his name is Pete Buttigieg. He was... <laughs> I'm sorry, I take myself off mute. Oh, man. Yep, yep. That is so indicative of exactly what it is you're talking about, of exactly what is wrong with the Democratic Party, is that it's nice and photogenic, it's great, but it doesn't have any sort of substance at all whatsoever. Right. I'm sorry. And so you said it was embodied in Pete Buttigieg. I'm sorry, I just had to take the yeah, opportunity. The, the, the Pete Buttigieg example is the exact opposite. Somebody who has no experience running for federal office, the mayor of a city in Indiana of some, you know, a couple hundred thousand people, Especially the equivalent of a, of a state senator in Virginia, running for the highest office of the land, and given all the spotlight in the world, at the end of the day, they were vetted to be subservient to the system that be. In Virginia, Francis Landing was not going to be subservient to the system that be in her candidacy for the office, the highest office in Virginia. And so she was immediately seen as a threat, and she was treated as a threat, not just by the Democratic Party, not just by the Republican Party, but by the whole system. When I mean the whole system, that means that's why she didn't get a position on the debate stage. That's why she was not allowed to voice her concerns. Because if she was, just as you mentioned, she represents the black community's interests statewide. Yep. A major if constituency, you, particularly within Richmond. Right. If you are given the choice as a, a black person in Virginia, if you are given the choice between a black woman that has all the semblances of one, from her name to all... Uh, to, to the way she dresses, the way she looks, she resembles the everyday black Virginian. She speaks the issues of an everyday black Virginian. She talks about them so passionately. And she's able to connect them to the issues of other marginalized peoples. If you allow somebody like that to be a third option, 
then you are going to take away a lot of votes, not just from Democrats, but also from Republicans. Believe it or not, they did not want that to happen. They did not want to be to turn out to be a race of that sort at all. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. And and that was that was a big threat. And so they completely ostracized her. They made her scream at Chuck Todd on the debate stage. Good for her. And I am proud that she did that. That's essentially how you confront the Virginia way. I did it in uh, at the 400th anniversary of our democracy down in Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. She did it in a different way. When the system is able to absorb that energy to its benefit, like it did in my case when I was standing up to Trump, Trump being seen as somebody who's a threat to that system, Trump's approval rating was the lowest it could be during the presidency, during his four years of being a president. Well, Joe Biden is going to try his best to outdo him. And, and literally, the, the Washington Post did a whole article about the polling of, of, of President Trump's approval, and it was at 27% or 23%. It was the lowest it was in its whole, its whole presidency at that particular month, and they used my picture standing up to Trump in Jamestown as illustrative of that particular low popularity. And you must remember that when you're at 27%, that includes a lot of Republicans. A lot of people that voted for Trump, a lot of people that disapproved of him. And so you can see the needle here. When Democrats are united, when they are able to accept their most new part of their base, people on the left of of the party, people that never believed in the Democratic Party before, to be able to enact change, people that decided that they're willing to engage in the Democratic Party's process to advance society just a little bit further, to move idealism into practical results. When they decide to ostracize those people, they lose huge messaging, they lose huge power, whether it be in elections or on the ground, and they suffer for a very long time. Prior to the trifecta majority being established in 2019 in Virginia, there was no trifecta majority for Democrats for close to 20 years. Two decades, not one decade, not a half decade. So who knows how long this is going to take for us to get a governing majority again in Virginia. It might be another 20 years. And as I said, I mean, that's really what the gamble was. It was the gamble of what are we going to do with this state? Are we actually going to continue to govern? Because – and just as just as Ibrahim Samira just pointed out, or Delegate Samira just pointed out, Republicans are not interested in governing. Like, literally their entire message since Ronald Reagan is don't govern. Like, the government is a bad idea. Let's just let's, – let's make government as difficult, as quote-unquote small as possible. And let's not at all advance uh, an agenda or, I mean, let's just not govern. I mean, anywhere between the debt ceiling to, like, reifying the Voting Rights Act to tax policy to budget, I mean, they just, they have zero interest in any of that. No, none at all. I mean, and, and they, they demonstrated every step of the way. And when, when, when us, as, as, as people on the left of the political aisle, however you characterize us, in, in matters of governance, in, 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 as Democrats, when you put us in a position where we're constantly having to appeal to their voter base, we never, ever will deliver results because we are the party of lowercase p in party, of the institution, of building something that can serve people, a system that enables everyday people, especially those that are struggling, to become better. And Republicans are, are exactly the opposite because they want to maintain the privilege that they have and the privilege that they have is maintained by maintaining the status quo. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, we, we really need to, we really need to find a way to confront leadership 
we really need a way to find a way to have leadership do their job or to get out of the way. Stop being yeah. leadership of people that are on the left of the political aisle. I mean, my thinking into that mostly, our prescription for that is to essentially delve and invade the primary, invade your local Democratic Party <laughs> and sort of – and just begin to take over the Democratic Party because it at a local level – and as you said earlier, you know, all politics is local. In terms of actually taking over a state Democratic Party, yes, yes, it is. It's about going to your local Democratic Party meeting and essentially with you and a couple of your political friends and take over and go about endorsing and ringing out the vote for candidates that would actually pursue – the kind of policy that we want, and not only the policy that we want, that would actually be beneficial to – it would actually be beneficial to the party as a whole in terms of getting us elected. Mm-hmm. Well, I, what I would say is that you don't necessarily have to be a member of the party to do that. You can, uh, you, you can have people that do that and, 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 and power to them. You know, I am one of those people. I certainly appreciate my local party. I, I appreciate what they do. I care about what they're – doing and how to help them become better uh, and, and, and I've, I've demonstrated that I can win amongst them in internal elections I've never lost an election an internal election to the Democratic Party in, in our committees by anything less than 50% of the vote you know, that, that's testament that that the base is of the traditional Democratic Party however small it is is interested in what we're doing but at the end of the day you don't need to be part of that you can just support candidates or run candidates that are 100% by your side. And that will be enough to pull serious candidates, I should say. That will be enough to pull the party to be better, to act better when, in, when they are in government, whether it be in the minority or in the majority. To act right. Exactly. To act right. That's, that's as simple as it is. We just want them to act right. We don't need to be in positions of power. We don't need our candidates necessarily to win. We just need to move the needle every single time as much as possible. And, uh, yes, that means primaries are very important because that is where you define the, the Democratic Party and its future. That is how you define it, whether it be locally or nationally or statewide. That is how you define the, 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 the next version of the Democratic Party, what comes of it. I am – interested in your thoughts as to where this goes. What are we looking at in terms of the Youngkin administration? Apparently in its entirety is, is, in, is intact. All three made it. And on top of that, where do you think that leaves Virginia Democrats in 2023 and Democrats in 2022? Uh, um, so number one, I think that even if it's a weak backstop, there still is a backstop in the state Senate through 2023. Yeah. Right. So a lot of, not a lot of crazy things are going to happen in the first two years. Right. That being said, I do not see the second half of oh, gosh. Yep. the national uh, majority happening. I don't think we will have a national majority in Congress in 2020, after 2022 midterms. I do not think that there's any way of fixing that situation out right now. I think the tide has turned. The infrastructure bill passed will not be the saving grace that many Democrats believe it to be. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? Two and a half billion dollars towards airports over the next 10 years, you don't think that's going to save? <laughs> you don't think it's going to save the Democratic Party's base? <laughs> yeah. Because 
I mean, it, it, it's it's astonishing the way to think about it because it's like, oh yeah, so people getting on their planes faster and the the, the runway is looking a little nicer on the on the uh, on the uh, uh, after the plane lands. That's exactly what's going to win a section next time, uh, or uh, that that bridge that uh, people don't really pay attention to when they're driving. Uh, it's going to get renewed, and so that means that uh, people are going to vote Democrat um, ten years. Right, um, and and of course uh, the whole oh we're going to govern in a bipartisan way, and so you know the only legislation that we pass is bipartisan. So you know you go you go you go and start you start um, uh, uh, you know, going around and trying to uh, enthuse your base, and every single time you're having to say, oh, well, you know, uh, we did this with Republican support even. That's not firing up people. Like, no one cares. Like, like, I'm the last of your party. Nobody cares about that. And when, when, when midterms come around, people are going to vote R for R and D for D. So the question is, can you turn out more Ds? And guess what? The majority of your Ds that don't turn out are not college-educated white women. <laughs> they are working class black and brown people. That's disproportionately who they are. So have you alleviated their pains? We are ending 2021. We're going to 2022. There is no alleviation of their pains. They have more money in their pockets, but they're afraid to spend it. They're worried every single day of the crisis becoming worse and worse with this pandemic and with the economy hitting people on the margins harder and harder. In all sorts of different ways, so they're holding on to the they're holding on to their cash as much as they can. That's why we're having so much struggles with our economy because people are we're still worried that the government is not there for them if there is an economic downturn. And so you land yourself in 2022. We're already the clock is already ticked. We are under 365 days. We're actually now uh, 358 days away. You cannot change your narrative that quickly unless you do drastic things. And it does not look like we will be doing drastic things when we have congresswomen like Abigail Spanberger going out on national television and <laughs> saying that President Joe Biden is not, was not elected to be FDR. That is, oh if that is the message that the moderate wing, quote-unquote, not very moderate, I should say the extreme, extremely corporate wing of the Democratic Party is going to go out and say – is what they need from their president. Don't okay. deliver results is what you're telling your president, and your president is going to listen to you because your president does not want to be seen otherwise by the corporate establishment. That be, oh, well, great. We're definitely winning the midterms now. So I expect many changes uh, uh, to happen at the federal level with the makeup of Congress that will disable Democrats even further. And uh, until 2023, I don't see anything crazy happening in Virginia. But nonetheless, 2023 is going to be a clean sweep for Republicans again. Oh, gosh. In, in the state elections. And there is no way of reversing that. Okay. There is literally... No way whatsoever of reversing that. The setup for the Democratic Party does not allow for there to be any way of reversing that result from happening. There's no way. The party is set up for failure from the get-go, right this very moment, 
through the next two years. And so what that will lead to is potentially uh, a maybe a split Senate with a coin toss, potentially on, on that Senate, on those state Senate races. We'll see how the, the maps get drawn up by the Republican, uh, 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 the all Republican appointed Supreme Court of Virginia. Every single one of them, and, two, and one of them is a is, is a former delegate on behalf of the Republican Party, <laughs> and, and 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 another is a family friend of a state senator uh, that is a Republican uh, of of those Supreme Court justices. Uh, I should say not a family. I said family friend. I said I said somebody. I think it's a family member <laughs> of a state senator. Excuse me, misuse my language. So you you have a setup for a full Republican majority. Uh, and then at that point, they can govern. And um, honestly, uh, at that point, there's a strong chance that somebody like Glenn Youngkin can come in and be seen as like the upgrade to Trump and run for president. And they would be able to campaign on it. And uh, I mean, there could be all sorts of things that can happen that will be huge, the huge detriment of Democrats and their leadership in particular. You know, I, I, as a Democrat, that is not accepted by the leadership, statewide leadership, can see the writing on the wall. What happened in the years prior to 2016, the 2016 election, is accelerating right now. It's happening all over again, and it's happening way worse because people already know what to expect. There's nothing that's going to be too different. The years after 2009, when Obama became president, when there was no real deliverables, when when banks were being bailed out and people were not, yep, we got okay, so you got you ended up with ten essentially a whole decade of losses for the Democratic Party. Twelve hundred seats level. lost, local, state, and federal. Twelve hundred yeah. seats just right. gone. That will continue to be the case because there is more doubling down today than ever before on the ways of the Democratic Party as it currently stands. There's a constant doubling down, and and there's no looking back. Everything you hear on the news right now about the Virginia Democratic race, Virginia race for governor analysis, all of it is extremely poor, and nobody's reflecting differently. They are stubborn. They believe that they are right and that everybody that's out there shouting and screaming from the left of their party is wrong. And they're unwilling to recognize anything but that. All the, all, all the writing is on the wall. There's nothing that's not on the wall right now. It is extremely obvious where we are going. So it's up to organizers and activists that care about the issues that the Democratic Party is supposed to stand for to figure out an alternative way. And that alternative way, as you alluded to before, is absolutely through Democratic primaries. Not the, prim not the party, not winning over the party, but literally winning the positions that create the power for government, for the Democratic Party. This is the best time to do it. We must learn the lessons. We must understand that this is not the way we are going to progress. We're going to consistently lose if we don't engage in primaries when the party is not doing anything for everyday people. We need to hold them accountable even when they're in the minority. You can't just let them say that we're in the minority, we have no governing power, you gave us no power, and so we can't do anything. We can't let them say that. There is ways of winning after you're in the minority. You can rebuild after a loss. And right now, the Democratic Party of Virginia is not going to be rebuilding correctly after this loss.
And so we will absolutely be stuck. There's no inspiration whatsoever. There's nothing that's going to happen that's going to empower us to win in the near term and certainly not in the long term given what we're seeing in federal, at the federal level. That is Delegate Ibrahim Zamira. That is the doctor's prognosis for the next few <laughs> years, and it ain't looking good. Um, it ain't looking good. Democrats took a bet and Virginians lost. We're going to be paying off that bet for the next four years. When it comes to trans rights, when it comes to the environment, when it comes to tax policy, when it comes to clean energy, when it comes to criminal justice reform, when it comes to guns, when it comes to abortion, when it comes to same-sex marriage, and many, many other issues, we are going to see a significant about-face of the Virginia executive. The Attorney General's office has already begun making moves, unconstitutional moves, to go about interfering in local cases. That is not something that the Attorney General does in Virginia. There was an article earlier that stated that if you want to change the opinion of your local Commonwealth attorney, well, then you should go vote. Because outside of that, it's not going to change. That's how Virginia's constitution is set up. That's how he's always done it. And the idea that this guy is going to come in and act like essentially Calhoun is ridiculous. We have a long four years ahead of us. The next two years are going to be easier than the two years after that. But at the end of the day, we still have ourselves and our communities to look after and to do what we can to resist their decisions, but also to empower and support one another.